They point to a neural pulse pressure as an early indicator of a patient that may have bled out extensively. And so why is that? That's because someone's iris is actually blocking the drainage system inside of the eye. You can't diss at all ketamine, the greatest drug in the history of mankind, <laughs> all right? Absolutely. Listen to what the patient is telling you, but put it in a context of all the data. I don't know how they swallow so many of these, but this is like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of drugs. I've gone through this in my head like a thousand times, and I'm still not certain exactly the sequence of events from here. The seasons go round. They go round and around, said the tulip, dancing among her friends, in their brown bed in the sun, in the April breeze. Welcome to April 2022 EM Wrap. It is a great month here. Jan, I got a really critical question for you. Is it true... Do April showers bring May flowers? Is this really true, or in the time of climate change, has that gone away? You know, it's a great question, and when we have these little cliches that have to do with the weather and the environment, I don't know if it's true anymore. Do they bring May flowers? I guess they could, but I feel like some of these need to be adjusted. Well, let's cross our fingers, Jen, because it is rainy here, as it has been for the last four days, and I am hoping that that means we're going to have a very pleasant spring into summer because we can really use some nice weather. And we could use some nice flowers. <laughs> like Absolutely. Some nice flowers. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Jan, let's drop into what we've got going on for this month, starting with our case. And you've got a, a really good case for us to go through. So let's let's dive in. The case. All right. Well, this is a really an everyday case as I see it. So this is a 58-year-old female. She is telling you that she is here for abdominal pain. It's been going on for a day. It's kind of generalized. She takes her hand and kind of rubs it over her belly, as patients often do. Her vitals look normal. Her heart rate's 67. Her blood pressure's 135 over 88. Respiratory temp are all normal. She has no past medical history, so no real comorbidities. She's not taking any regular medications. So giving that story, you can kind of picture this lady sitting on the gurney in front of you. Swami, what do you want to know? There's definitely some of the gross examination features I want to know, like how does she look overall? Does she look uncomfortable? Does she not look uncomfortable? She sounds like, I mean, she's pretty young. She's healthy. That's, those are good signs going for you. And we kind of know, I always keep this in the back of my head, the younger the patient is with abdominal pain, the less likely I'm going to find something. And the older they are, the more likely I'm going to find something to the point where if I didn't find something, I probably didn't do enough of a workup. But she's kind of right smack in the middle of that, right? Where she's, she's 58, she's healthy. So I'm thinking to myself, there's a good chance I'm going to find something, but I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised. This is non-specific abdominal pain. So obviously I need an exam. Let's, let's see what the exam is like. And maybe that'll push me in one direction or the other. Well, first, thank you for saying that she's relatively young as a 58-year-old female. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy with that comment. So, okay. So she tells you the pain is kind of an aching pain. She vomited six times. It was non-bloody. She has not had any change in her stool, no fever chills, no urinary symptoms, no sick contacts, no surgical history. And the exam part, which is really what you asked me, the exam part, her abdomen's pretty soft. You don't detect any rebound. She's got kind of mild, non-focal tenderness to palpation across her abdomen. It's kind of this side, that side. It's not distended. It's not worrying you that much. There's some tenderness there, but you're not localizing it to one place or the other. So I'm not going to be jumping to CT scan at this point. It doesn't seem to be really localizing into one area where I'm like, well, maybe an ultrasound would help me looking at the gallbladder. I don't really have that. She does have vomiting and nausea. So, you know, first thing is I want to take care of some of her symptoms so I can give her something to help with her pain. I can give her something to help with that nausea. And maybe then I'm going to kind of delay and buy myself some time, get some labs and see if those labs turn up anything. And then if not, and she looks better after my medications, 
maybe that's it. And and we are left with this, you know, non-specific abdominal pain. I agree. So labs are a great opportunity for, you know, a period of reassessment, observation, and give her some symptomatic treatment. So all that happens. She gets a, a liter of saline. She gets four milligrams of IV morphine, four milligrams IV ondansetron. And your labs come back, and so they trickle in. And your white count's 11,000. Her hemoglobin's normal. Her UA has, you know, a few RBCs, a few white blood cells, negative nitrite. But she has no urinary symptoms, no bacteria. So what do you want to do? Oh, this is, this is the hard part. So I'm definitely going to reassess her at this point and see how she's feeling. Because I think sometimes when you have these nonspecific abdominal pain cases, it is about serial reassessments. Maybe things have changed. Maybe now the pain is more localized or maybe the opposite. Maybe now she's like, I feel a lot better. And you re-examine and she's non-tender and she's tolerating PO. And you're like, okay, well, maybe you can just go home at that point with no real diagnosis, except you look better now. So I think a good focused reassessment, re-examination, talking to the patient, seeing how she feels, that all might be helpful in figuring out, do I need to do more of a workup or am I just going to send her home? Absolutely. So she does tolerate a graham cracker or two. She is feeling better. She's okay with going home. And I think at this point, I just want to pause and, and ask, you know, for those who are listening, ask yourself, you know, if I saw a 58-year-old woman who had objective tenderness on my abdominal exam, a white count of 11,000, you know, would I have scanned her or not scanned her? And I think all of us probably would come up with a little bit of a different answer to that question, depending on, you know, how risk averse you are, where you practice, what your resources are. There are probably a lot of answers to this clinical question. I personally agree with you, Swami. I would circle back to her without having done any advanced imaging at this point to reassess her. And if she looks better and is a reliable patient, I would send her home. And my question to you is, what diagnosis do you write on the chart? Now, that's really tough. And I think there are a couple of things in there to kind of hash out. Some people would say, well, you gave her morphine and her pain is better and she's tolerating PO. Is that hiding her symptoms and her signs? It shouldn't really change that abdominal tenderness all that much in terms of if she had a surgical abdomen, I don't think four milligrams of morphine is going to remove that surgical abdomen. We've got tons of literature telling us that. So I don't really think that I put a lot of stock in. You gave her some pain medication and now she's non-tender and she doesn't have peritoneal signs, but you've masked those. She doesn't have any bowel type symptoms in terms of like she doesn't have any diarrhea or loose stools. So you can't call this like an acute gastroenteritis, although that I know sometimes happens. And Mike Weinstock will tell you, you are asking for a world of hurt when you put acute gastroenteritis on the chart and they don't have both the gastro and the enteritis pieces. You could call it acute gastritis, I guess, or just nonspecific abdominal pain, which I think is okay. And maybe the billers and coders don't love that you put nonspecific abdominal pain, but I don't really know what I have, what I'm working with. So I'm okay with telling the patient, listen, you have some abdominal pain, you seem to be better with the medications. Your blood work shows this. And, and Jan, I think we both agree that that white blood count, who knows what to do with that, right? A little bit of an elevation doesn't tell me much of anything. Honestly, even if it was 15 or 16, I'm not sure that it would really push me in one direction or another. But you tell the patient, the blood work doesn't look too bad. You feel better. I think you can go home. And you give them good return precautions with that, which I think is really important, is no matter what your end disposition is, if you're going to send the patient home, Give them good instructions to come back. And I think we've talked about this before, Jan. I like telling the patient, listen, I might be wrong. Maybe there is something serious going on. And so if your symptoms get worse, if something changes, come back. Tell me I'm wrong. Give me another chance to make the right diagnosis. I very much agree. I'd, I think you shouldn't force yourself into making a diagnosis that you're, 
you know, unsure about. It is okay to have diagnostic uncertainty and call this nonspecific abdominal pain. So to me, in this particular case, the clinician decided to go with acute gastroenteritis, which if it is that, if you knew that that's what it was, then the discharge instructions would be go home, hydrate, you know, follow up with your PMD. And that's kind of a different pathway than I'm not sure what this is. Let me be more cautious with what I tell you and encourage you to come back if it gets worse. So those are really kind of two different pathways depending on what diagnosis you decide to talk yourself into. So I would prefer to stay on the I'm uncertain side and give some return precautions because I honestly don't know. So it's just, you know, if you say it's AGE, then that's sort of really a different pathway. And in this case, that's what happened. I agree. I think I would say nonspecific abdominal pain. And I would tell the patient that I expect they will be getting better in 24 hours. And if they're not getting better in 24 hours, they should come back to the emergency room and we'll re-examine them and we'll see whether we need to do more of a workup. And like you said, there are going to be some people that would say, you know what, 58, she's got localizing tenderness or she's got some tenderness in an abdominal examination. I'm going to scan her. And I don't think that that's the wrong answer. And I think there's going to be a lot of listeners that say, well, she looks pretty good. Vital signs are okay. She's tolerating PO. I'm going to send her home with follow-up instructions. I think that's okay. I don't think either one of those is a right or wrong answer. I think the wrong answer would be not giving this patient correct follow-up or return precautions. And I think that's really the key is if you're not going to scan them and you're going to send them home, make sure that you give them good instructions for coming back. And, and then Jen, even if you scan them, that scan might be negative. And if you send them home after a negative scan, you still have to give them instructions of, if you're not feeling better in 24 hours, come back. So this patient got the label of acute gastroenteritis and was discharged but, you know, we got a little bit more time in this intro case, Jan. So uh, what happened next? Yeah, you know that this person did just go home with, you know, and not come back. So this was, of course, a bounce back. Patient comes back about 20 hours later. Pain is much worse. This time the patient, you know, gets a CT scan because they're acutely worse and the exam is more focal to the right lower quadrant. And her white count is now, you know, a little more elevated, 13.8. And her CT happens and she has perforated appendicitis. Now, Unlike the sometimes presentation that the perforated appendicitis actually makes the pain better, in this particular case, the patient was worse. And she went to the OR and she did fine. So this was not a case with a bad outcome. I think that this is a case to talk about that decision point, which is what I really wanted to focus on. And of course, as a bounce back case, you know, it caused us to look back at this case to see, you know, is there something we could have done different? And I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, I think so too. And, and what I think is really good here is that the patient felt comfortable coming back when she didn't get better. And that's really important. So regardless of what diagnosis the clinician put on the chart, that clinician was able to express to the patient and get the patient to buy in. It's okay to go home, but if you get worse, come back. We will see you right away. It's okay if we are wrong, we will take care of you. And this patient 20 hours later comes back and does exactly what they're supposed to do. And so the outcome isn't so bad. So I think that importance of those discharge instructions really can't be understated. It is so important to make the patient feel comfortable in coming back to the emergency room if things don't change. But you're right. When you have a case like this, it is good to go back and look at that prior chart and say, well, was there something in that prior chart that maybe would have pushed me in a different direction? And I guess if you do that full chart review, did you see something? Was there some other note, like a resident saw the patient or a nurse saw the patient or a tech was walking by and they were like, oh, the patient's holding their right lower quadrant. You know, was there something that would push you or, or could have push this clinician in a different direction had they known it. So that is an additional very good point. And yes, on chart review, of course, besides your note, the MD note, there are other observers who are writing notes that sometimes we don't have the time or, or don't look at their documentation. And let me tell you that in this chart, 
there were two notes that kind of stood out on retrospective review. One was the medical screening exam note that one of our APPs wrote that described the pain a little bit differently, described it as a pain that the patient couldn't, they couldn't sleep, they had woken them up, that they were guarding on their initial exam, and they had given them acetaminophen way out in the waiting room before you got to see them. So that was one element. And the nurse who was taking care of the patient in the booth also wrote that the patient was tender in the right lower quadrant and that she was grimacing as, you know, the nurse pushed on her right lower quadrant. So, you know, you look at those notes, you're like, oh my gosh, these notes sometimes just exist to sort of make your life miserable and get you in trouble. Like, why else were they there but to contradict what you decided to do? But, you know, it just highlights you got to look at the other documentation. It is okay not to do what is suggested by other people's documentation as long as you address that you saw the note and like I noted that this, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in my exam, I'm not seeing that, you know, at least to reconcile those two discordant pieces of information. That's so key. And I've heard Mike Weinstock say this many times when he talks about these medical legal misadventures is that if there's another note that contradicts what you are going to do, just address it. Just say, hey, you know, I see this prior note saying blah, 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 blah. On my examination, that is not what I'm seeing. And I think that's really important. And as the screeners in triage, these notes from the screeners are fine. But sometimes you see like a doc in triage and they say, patient has right lower quadrant tenderness to palpation, would obtain a CT scan. I'm like, well, that's really kind of screwing me a little bit. So I think without being too vague, it is reasonable to say, this is what I'm seeing and I'm passing that off to you. And I think if you see a patient in the triage booth that you're like, wow, I really think this patient has appendicitis, it's pretty reasonable then to tell the provider who ends up taking care of that patient, hey, when I saw the patient up here, they were really tender in the right lower quadrant. They might not be now, but I just want to let you know. And I think that's a kind of a professional thing that we should be doing to help each other out. So Jan, when you look at this case, the bounce back, the final diagnosis, going back and looking at that chart again, what do you kind of take away as things that we can learn to do better next time? So my takeaways from this case is I don't believe anything was done incorrectly here, even though this was sort of labeled as a bounce back case. I think that it was completely reasonable to send this patient home. And I don't think the answer here is to CT everyone. I think the answer here is to reassess patients, document what you see, to acknowledge the other notes that will be in the chart that are also involved in this patient's care. It's okay to acknowledge those. So it seems like a miss, but I don't think it's necessarily a miss. I also think it's okay to call belly pain just abdominal pain and not feel compelled to call it something specific like acute gastroenteritis especially when it lacks the elements of gastro and enteritis, I don't think you feel like you have to do that. So it's okay to say, I'm not sure what this is and to acknowledge that uncertainty. Absolutely. And, and I can't tell you the number of times I've had the patient come in with belly pain. I've seen them examine them, done some labs, given them some symptomatic management and eh, they look pretty good. I'm going to send you home, but here's what you're going to come back for. And then lo and behold, 24 hours, they're back in the emergency department. They're getting a CT scan. And who knows whether if I had scanned them on that first time, they would have had appendicitis. Maybe it was just too early and the CT scan would have been a false negative. So I think we shouldn't take the message of scan everyone, just like you said, but we should take the message of give them good return precautions if you're not going to do extra treatment or an extra management. I think that's really the key here. Make sure the patient's comfortable coming back and then getting taken care of if things change. All right, Jen, well, let's launch from that case into the rest of the show. We've got some really great stuff there were a couple of pieces I loved, but the one that really kind of got me, the, the one that I, I felt really poorly prepared to take care of was the bleeding hemophilia patient that Britt Guest and Mel talked about. And Jan, it's hard for me to say that I feel ill-prepared because just two years ago, I discussed almost the exact same case 
on MRAP. It was a trauma patient with bleeding who was had, who had hemophilia, and we kind of went through all the management. I still don't feel well-prepared, so I'm glad that they hit on that and give some really good messages of what to do when you see that patient. Yeah, I agree. When I heard the case, I was thinking I would not have known what to do here. So it was a really good and pertinent review. We just don't take care of patients like that very often. And there are some specifics to know. So, you know, it's like, where do you put those notes? Do you put them on your phone? How do you access that information quickly? And they talk a little bit about that. I enjoyed Jesse Werner's piece about acute angle closure glaucoma, a great review of the pathophysiology, the medications, et cetera. And I also liked the piece that you did about pulse pressure and trauma. This is one of those sort of warning signs that I think is important you know, we're always looking for clues. We need clues to know when people are going to change in a dynamic way and go down the tubes. And this is one of those clues that we should probably be paying attention to. Yeah. And you're not just saying you liked it. And we didn't just review this because Kenji Anaba was the senior author, but it does help <laughs> yeah, when you see Kenji right. Anaba's name on an article. You really want to review that one. You know, it's important. And I think this is a concept that maybe we're not paying attention to that might be able to help us in our trauma management a little bit more. So Swami, this month is also the very exciting MRAP One conference. It is coming in just a few weeks here. I am super excited about it. What do you think? I can't wait because it means I'm going to be out in LA. We're going to be in the same location, maybe share a drink, maybe catch up for the first time in a couple of years in person. And we can't wait to see all of you there that are coming out. But also remember, if you can't make it out, you don't feel comfortable traveling yet, this is all going to be free and streamed on MRAP. So join us virtually. We can't wait to see you. Yeah, please join us one way or the other. We would love to see you. And this is going to be a great conference. All right, Jen. Well, that's what we've got on tap for the month. There's some other great pieces in there, too, that people should be looking out for. And I can't wait to get back on the other side of this. Talk about the mailbag. We've got some good listener letters in there. And then, of course, the mega summary. So, Jan, we're going to launch into April. And then I'll see you on the other side. See you on the other side. Let's take it away. Rural Medicine Talks. So it starts out with a 50-something-year-old female. She's coming into our RED. You know the voice. Adrian Salim, been on the show before. Rural Medicine Doc. She tells a triage nurse that she fell. That's basically all the history that, that we're getting. Doesn't really have any specific complaints. It's just, you know, she fell. So the triage nurse notes that she appears a bit confused, maybe a bit intoxicated, was what she said. And now the patient says she consumes alcohol regularly, but she hasn't drank since last night. Okay, so it sounds kind of like a Friday night in an emergency department. It sounds kind of innocuous so far. Obviously. Cardi B. Her oxygen saturation is 80%. Her heart rate's a bit faster on 105 or so. The rest of her vitals are okay. The triage nurse brings her back into a monitored bed. She puts some oxygen on her. Her sat is now 95% with two liters of oxygen. And she's looking pretty stable. So I go to see the patient, but the first thing that I notice is that her face is like really puffy, like really big and puffy. Okay, well, you mentioned that she'd had a fall. Did it look like she had some sort of facial trauma? Were there any bruising? No, so that was a weird thing. There was like no bruising, no signs of trauma. It was just really puffy and, and swollen. I had really no idea why. And she says she just fell last night and then noticed her face was swollen this morning and she figured she should come in and get it checked out. She says she has no past medical history aside from drinking alcohol pretty regularly. But she does admit that she hasn't seen a doctor in, in, in a while, several years. So I check in our EMR, and she's only had one prior ED visit. That was about five years ago. It was for some alcohol-related issue, and, and that's about it. That's really the only information I'm getting. Okay, so this isn't really giving you the answer to this question about why her head appears to be swollen. 
So at first I'm like, you know, puzzled, like, why I just can't figure it out. I do a head-to-toe exam. I'm really not finding much. But it was when I was doing the FAST exam that it sort of all clicked together. So I was doing the FAST exam, again, because there was some sort of trauma. I'm just making sure there's no free fluid in her belly. And I'm really not seeing anything, like nothing. Normally you can see, you know, even if it's a difficult exam, you can still see a little bit. But I was not seeing anything. And then it dawns on me that I'm not seeing anything. It's because she's got subcutaneous emphysema just everywhere. And that's why I couldn't do the FAST exam. And uh, as soon as I realize this, I can just feel the crepitations just all over. It's like you kind of needed to know it was there and you need to know what you're looking for to, to, to find it, you know? There, that's why her face is also on because there's subcutaneous emphysema just tracking everywhere. It's tracking all the way up to her face, down into her abdomen. So I send her for a CT head and a CT C-spine since I have no idea what happened and she seems a little bit altered. Okay, this sounds very alarming. I've never seen sub-Q emphysema like, to that extent. It certainly sounds scary. But you do have a CT scanner in this emergency department, right? Or in this hospital. You don't have to transfer her out of the hospital. Correct, yes. Yeah. So we can do CTs in the department. But this happened on a weekend. So all we can do after hours are non-contrast CTs. So basically, we're just able to get CT heads and CT C-spines is all we're, we're able to get. Okay, so what did you find on the scan? Scan comes back all normal, aside from a lot of subcutaneous emphysema. Her chest x-ray, which I sent her for as well, is uh, not surprisingly shows a big left-sided pneumothorax, shows some rib fractures. I counted three of them, but it's really hard to see just because there's so much subcutaneous emphysema. And then the other significant finding is that her hemoglobin is now 89. And when I look back on our system, it, five years ago, it was 130. For our American listeners, her hemoglobin is now 8.9 compared to 13 five years ago. Okay, so what's your plan at this point? Yeah, so I'm thinking she's got some sort of significant trauma that led to her having rib fractures and a large pneumothorax. Her hemoglobin is low, but I have no idea if this is like an acute or a chronic uh, issue. And I'm completely unable to see anything on the FAST exam. So I, I don't know if she's having any other injuries. Is there free fluid in her belly? I just, I really don't know. So I call over to the trauma center. It's about an hour away by ambulance. And I see if we could get her transferred over there for some more imaging and some management. And they say they're happy to accept her. They just request that I put in a chest tube in the ED and then send her on her way after that. And I say, that's no problem. I think that's totally reasonable. So this is a single coverage emergency department, right? Like a chest tube, sure, it's obviously needed, but it can take some time and could certainly slow down the flow to a grind. So what was your plan here? That was exactly my thought. So at this point, I'm nearing the end of my shift. There are a ton of patients in the waiting room. And if I start doing the procedure, I'm going to be out of commission for a while. Now, if I have to do it, you know, if you have to do it, you have to do it. It's not a problem. People can wait. But this patient's pretty stable, and I feel like she can wait the hour or so until the next doctor starts. And then this way, I'll have another doctor around to keep seeing patients while I'm doing the procedure. And also, in case we need to give procedural sedation, there's another doctor around just in case I need some help as well. Okay, so the next doctor comes on shift, and you're ready to go. Yep. So I talk it over with the patient, and uh, we decide that she will need some procedural sedation for the chest tube insertion. So we've got all the equipment ready. We've got her on oxygen. She's got a SAT of 99%. We get her on entitled CO2. There's a nurse dedicated to administering the medications, watching the monitor, watching the patient. The next doctor starts and she asks me if she wants to help with the sedation. And I say, look, it's really busy. Why don't you go see patients? Um, There's a ton in the waiting room. So just keep flow going. It's a small department. So I say, look, if I need you, you know, we'll come get you. You'll be two seconds away, you know? So everyone's good. We get started. We start with ketamine. It's going great. I'm dissecting down to the, towards the pleura. The patient's doing fine. So then I get to her pleura, and I haven't kind of punctured her pleura just yet, but she starts moving around, getting pretty agitated. So we give her a little bit more ketamine. 
but she's getting more agitated and she's really starting to move around. So at this point, we give her a little bit of propofol. And then what happens next, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how this goes down. I've, I've gone through this in my head like a thousand times and I'm still not certain exactly the sequence of events from here. But basically, from what I remember, the nurse calls out to me and she says her sat's 85%. So she goes around to start jaw thrust and then she starts bagging. But then two seconds later, sat's, you know, 75%. So at this point, I call out to the other doctor. I said, can you come help us? So she comes right away. She starts bagging, but sat's now, you know, 60%. So I've stopped dissecting. My finger's still there, but I've stopped dissecting. And it's still right up against her pleura. And I think it was at this point I noticed that there's no more pleth on the O2 sat monitor. So, you know, I asked for a pulse check and they check and there's there's no pulse. Oh, God, how awful. That must have been so scary for you sitting there with your finger like up against her pleura trying to lead this, having your colleagues help with the airway. So I'm assuming you start CPR? Yeah, so we start CPR. I get my finger into her chest. She gets intubated. We already had blood cross-matched, so we give her two units right away. We do the usual CPR stuff. I think she got a dose of epi. We do about two cycles of CPR. I think it was probably about five minutes or so, and then we get ROSC. And what was she like post-ROSC? She was good. She was solid. She didn't need any pressors. Vitals were rock solid after. But she wasn't really fighting the tube, and she really wasn't waking up. So I call back the trauma team, I update them, and then she heads over there uh, by ambulance. And so what happened when she got to the trauma center? Yeah, not a whole lot. They did, you know, they scanned her from head to toe. Everything came back negative. There was no other significant injury aside from the pneumothorax and the rib fractures. She's in the ICU there. She's stable, but she's not waking up. So I call over every day for, you know, a few days, but there's really no change in her status. A little while later, I check her imaging. Our, Our hospitals are on the same kind of imaging network, so I check to see what kind of imaging she's had done recently. And this was about, I don't know, a week or two later, and she's got a trach and a feeding tube at this point. So that's when I kind of just lost hope and I felt like there was really no chance that she's going to recover with any sort of good neurological outcome. And I I basically just stopped calling and I stopped looking her up. Well, that's so rough. I've been there. I've done that myself when you kind of try and try to get news and then you get a sense of which way it's going and then you kind of cut yourself off. So what sort of things were going through your mind after all of this happened? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that was going through my mind, you know, reflecting back on this now. So this happened around the time that I started doing full-time emergency medicine. Up until this point, I was doing a little bit of emergency medicine and family medicine. And about five months before this happened, I kind of just started doing solely emergency medicine. And I remember thinking like, you know, maybe this wasn't for me. Like I, I should just quit, maybe just go focus solely on family medicine. And I also remember feeling worried about how I'd be perceived by my peers, you know, and then I remember feeling guilty about feeling that way. Like I'm not the one who ended up arresting and having a you know, potentially hypoxic brain injury. So I should, shouldn't be making this all about me. But then I think the hardest thing for me was that night, you know, I still have a family and I went home and had to put the kids to bed. And, um, you know, I had to bring them to school the next morning. You know, life goes on and I'm trying really hard to not let it affect me. But, you know, it's, it's not easy. So, yeah, I mean, I think that was the hardest part, just trying to live your life after that, you know, and be there for, for the family. Yeah, I think... And a lot of people sort of say about emergency medicine, you know, oh, it's good because you can leave work at, you know, work because you're not following patients after and you're not, you know, necessarily developing these long-term relationships with some of your patients. But these events can really shatter us and um, we do bring it home. It can be really hard to sometimes press the reset button. 
So was there anything that helped you? I know you didn't give up doing emergency medicine, which we are all very grateful for. But what sort of things did help you get through this? I think the the big one was just talking to my colleagues. And that night, I got a few text messages. One was from the other doctor who I was working with that day. Another one was from the nurse that was that was uh, there during the resuscitation. And they knew that I was pretty beat up about it. And so they sent me some encouraging words that night. So that really helped. And then I had, I think I had like three days off after, you know, after this shift, which I think made things worse. I think it would have been better if I just went straight back into working. But the next day, the next shift that I had, I was talking with one of my colleagues and I just, you know, before the shift started, I kind of went over it with her. So that was really helpful. She, you know, a lot of people that I spoke to gave me really good takeaways and, and, and that really helped just, you know, getting it out there and talking with my colleagues. And what sort of lessons did you learn? So look, for those of us who work in rural or single coverage EDs, we do a lot of procedural sedations, you know, with a single doctor and a nurse. And that's just reality. We just don't have the luxury of always having two docs around at all times. And we just, we can't call our anesthesia colleagues. If, if we do have anesthesia, we can't call them for every single sedation that we're doing. And again, that's just the reality of a single coverage ED. And normally it works well. You know, we have a doctor doing the procedure and can manage the airway if we need to. We normally have, a, you know, a, a nurse or a few nurses helping out with the airway watching the monitor, watching the, the patient, helping with the procedure. And most of the time, the procedures are things like fractures or, uh, you know, dislocation reductions or cardioversions. And these are procedures where we can easily stop the procedure. And then if we need to, we can come around and take over the airway, you know, uh, quickly if we need to. But this was not that case, right? The patient started out hypoxic. The procedure was longer than usual. And it, I wasn't able to just come around and take over the airway if I needed to. Now, there was another doctor close by, but they weren't right there. And I think those seconds really mattered when we needed it. And I think as rural providers, we can sometimes feel like, you know, oh, we've been doing this on our own for a long time. We're, you know, we're comfortable. We don't really need any help. We've got this. But sometimes we do need help. And there's definitely no shame in that. This is one of your worst nightmare cases, right? So you're minding your own business when all of a sudden you've got a patient that's alive and breathing for themselves and you sedate them and they stop breathing for themselves and they have a cardiac arrest. Procedural sedation is terrifying. You should go into it with the idea that you're going to take away a lot of this person's ability to look after themselves. It should terrify you. Even when you've done thousands of them and you've become very comfortable with the procedures and the sedation, you should be afraid. Whenever possible, get help. A second set of hands, eyes is really helpful. In the elderly, in those with comorbidity, I suggest that you use as small a dose as possible to get this done. Use local, use blocks, do what you need to do to try and use as little sedation as possible. The elderly in particular, and also those with comorbidity, can go from completely fine to apneic really fast. And the other thing I would suggest that, when possible, don't mix agents. A bit of ketamine and a bit of propofol here would have been the problem. So whenever possible, stick with one agent. So go low, get help, try not to mix agents, use a lot of local and other stuff as well. Despite that, you can do all of that and the person can still arrest. Be ready for that. Have the stuff ready for that. You know, this case was a number of years ago and so knowing exactly what the doses and stuff were is really not the teaching point here. The real teaching point is be afraid, be very afraid, get some help, particularly in the high-risk patients, but in everybody. Yeah, 100%. And since this case, I've been way more likely to use hematoma blocks or nerve blocks, especially, you know, for those elderly patients coming with a coles fracture and I just really don't want to have to sedate them. I've been doing nerve blocks, hematoma, and they work great most of the time, you know? So I've been much more likely to use that as opposed to sedation. Please do not hear us saying sedation is potentially dangerous, therefore never do it. No, no. 
Sedation is potentially dangerous and treat it that way. It's also uh, bad to not sedate people who need it. So do not take that message away. This is just a really good learning case. Just remember what you're doing here. You're taking an awake person who's looking after themselves and you're going to make them not so good. Be careful. So now do you want the good bit? You've all been stressed out about this. You've all been in that circumstance. We have all sedated patients and it's gone badly. And if you, that hasn't happened to you yet, it will. But here's the good part. Ever hear what happened to her? Did she make any sort of recovery? Yeah, and in fact, she did actually make a full recovery, but I only learned about that a few years later. It was actually just a few months ago that I learned that. It was just a coincidence. There was a, a newer ED nurse in the department, and I was telling her the story. And then the nurse, she had just come from working on the medical floor. And she said, oh, I, you know, I know that patient. She was just admitted. And it turns out that after this patient left the ICU, she was there for about a month or so, then she was transferred back to our hospital for rehab. During that hospitalization, they discovered a few undiagnosed chronic medical issues, and she's been admitted to the hospital several times because of those. But she is talking and walking, and she basically made a full neurological recovery. That's amazing. That is so good to hear. And what was it like finding that news out? Like, how did it feel? I was just like, it was just such a huge relief. I remember driving home that night, and it was like a huge like weight had been lifted off me, and I'd been dealing with this for about, you know, five years, just kind of weighing on me. And it didn't change what happened, you know, but it was just uh, just a huge relief knowing that, that she actually made a full recovery. So to me, the other big teaching point here is forgive yourself. If you are a clinician, you're going to have some bad outcomes. And you do this long enough, you're going to have a lot of them. You have to learn to forgive yourself. You have to understand that you're all human and that sometimes things will go wrong because of you. And a lot of the time things will go wrong because they're just going to go wrong and you are the poor unlucky sod that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But you've got to learn to forgive yourself or you're going to carry a lot of PTSD and not be able to do the job. It's a hard job. It's terrifying a lot of the times. And like I say, sometimes you didn't even do anything wrong and bad things happen. Forgive yourself. Well, I really appreciate you sharing this story that I you know, know has been a challenge for you to sort of work through in your mind. And I appreciate you being so honest with us and also with these great teaching points that come out of it. So I'm very glad that you stayed in emergency medicine, as are all of your colleagues and your patients. And keep doing what you do, because what you do, Adrian, matters. Oh, thanks, Vanessa. It's time again for... Uh, critical Care Mailbag. Scott Weingott! Critical Care... Mailbag. Scott, how's it going, man? How are you? What's up, brother? I am good. I am good. We have a great question from a listener. This is one that was thrown my way. I threw it your way, and you're like, oh, we have to take this on. So this is from Josh Lowe. And Josh goes into kind of the situation he's in right now. He's working in a place where he's got 30 to 50 boarded COVID patients waiting for an ICU bed. Despite his best efforts at maximizing hemodynamics and oxygenation, he was frequently having to intubate patients with sats in the low 70s, despite BiPAP and everything else that he could do, and soft blood pressures on top of that. He's thinking back to May 2019 critical care mailbag on the hemodynamically neutral intubation. He started using ketamine only for awake intubations and was getting better results. And what he was reaching out to us about is what happens when he runs out of ketamine. So he started using some Versed. He started using some Atomidate. But what was kind of the ideal and what he really wanted to know from us is what are the best approaches to getting that hemodynamically neutral intubation in these hypoxemic, slightly hypotensive COVID patients? And what pitfalls may he have not seen with his small N, 
Although Scott, he says his N is about 50, which is is nothing to laugh at. That's a, that's a good number of hypotensive, hypoxemic, awake intubations to do. So I think this is a good jumping point for us to get into the sedative-only intubation. I know this is a topic you are very passionate about, but let's start really at the beginning of this because we love to do rapid sequence intubation in the emergency department. Why do we love full RSI? Why is that the optimal approach to give a paralytic and a sedative instead of a sedative alone? And you know, this harkens back to debates had like in the early times of emergency intubation, right at the cusp of where Ron Walls was getting us the ability to use paralytics. And yet some ED docs were still holdouts and they, uh, they're like, well, why need to paralyze them? It's much better not to because then it'll wear off and they'll start breathing again. So I'm just going to do intubations with just sedatives and look at, all the, look at all the success I had. And so the first thing you need to understand when evaluating this issue, and what we'll call this is facilitated intubation. That's the industry standard term you'll find in the literature for sedative-only intubation. It's facilitated intubation. Is you need to understand how success rates work in emergency intubation. Now, people who are doing this in the pits will look at their recollections of their success rates and say, like, I'm really good at intubation. I'm an excellent intubator. I am, you know, master of the airway. And that's because, you know, their last four or five intubations went relatively well. And I don't know if relatively well means, you know, that they got first pass success or maybe it took them two tries, and, but they feel good because most of the time they do okay. But that's not how you judge intubation success. Intubation success, the difference between a truly top of game intubator and someone who is mediocre is maybe one in 10. One in 10 intubations. And it might even be that in one in 10, the true master gets it on the first pass and the mediocre practitioner gets it after two or three. So not even necessarily failure. That's the difference between true expertise and really lousy intubation skills. So the difference between great and not so good is it's a very small number. Now, why do, why do we care then? Like, what, Why do we spend so much time to get to the high level expertise is because in that one out of 10, in a critically ill patient, it may be the difference in that patient living or dying. So the stakes are high, even on these really low numbers. And the analogy I'll give you, Swami, is do you think you're a good driver? Oh, I'm the best. Yeah, I am we, the best driver. Since we're both male, we all think we're fantastic, right? <laughs> that just goes with the, the nature of the game. But when's the last time you had a car crash? Oh, uh, it's been a while, actually. I haven't had a, a real accident since I was like 19. Well, that's pretty good. But the thing is, the difference of like an excellent driver and a really crappy one is something like once every 10 years when you look at the insurance data. So, you know, the people who are just horrible, dangers on the road, look and say, I haven't had an accident for 10 years. Now, you've been more than that, Swami. You might actually be a good driver. And they're like, I'm doing great. I'm a fantastic driver. No, you are frigging dangerous. And your insurance rates should be much, much higher because if you have an accident every 10 years, you are like one of the worst drivers on the road. Same thing with intubation. You should not be failing one intubation in 10. It should be a lot less than that. And so when you look at something like a facilitated intubation and you're like, I just did my past eight intubations with no problem. I could keep going with this. I don't need paralytics. You're missing the point. And so you will get an edge by paralyzing patients, but that edge won't be that you fail once every three times with paralysis and once every two times with, with sedative only. Sedative only clearly makes intubation success worse. But it won't do it in such a big number that you could say, oh, uh, you know, I don't need paralytics anymore. 
So all of this is to say you can get patients intubated with sedatives alone, but your success rate will be lower. Now, you need to separate out facilitated intubation from ketamine-awake intubation because they're giving you a completely different milieu. The reason to use ketamine for awake intubation is the patient keeps breathing with reliability. And therefore, the trade-off of a more difficult intubation is balanced by the fact that you're not really affecting the patient's physiologic milieu from the perspective of their hypotension, their right-sided heart failure, or their degree of the contribution of their negative inspiratory rate to maintenance of their oxygenation. So you're getting a lot of positives, and the trade-off is it's a lot harder to intubate the patient. So you take an intubation that is not as easy, but it's a lot safer, and that's why we do ketamine-awake intubation. If you start switching in agents like Atomidate, which is probably the worst of the facilitated intubation agents because it doesn't have a profound muscle relaxation, there's no real gain to doing that anymore because the patients in general are going to get apneic with the sufficient dose of Atomidate to make it work. Now, you might find an Atomidate dose of five will allow you to intubate that patient and keep them breathing but not with any degree of reliability. I mean, when I was an intern, I wasn't allowed to use any medication, and we were still able to get patients intubated, just not with the same success rate that was alluded to before with RSI. So should you use Atomidate for facilitated intubation? No, there's never a gain to using Atomidate. Should you ever do facilitated intubation? Maybe. Probably not, unless you're a true airway expert. There's not too many reasons to lose the benefits of the paralysis without gaining the benefits of a patient who's going to stay spontaneously breathing like they will with ketamine. But if you were going to do it, how should you do it? Well, the optimal agent for facilitated intubation, as opposed to ketamine-awake intubation, true facilitated intubation, where you want to give an induction agent that's going to make a patient apneic without giving a paralytic, for whatever reason, is propofol. And a big slug of propofol, if the hemodynamics will allow it, that will get you fairly close to your success rate with paralysis. Not as good. It's still going to cut off some of your success rates, but it'll get you pretty close. If you added in the synergistic effect of an opioid, with the best one being Remy fentanyl, which none of us have access to, or standard fentanyl if, if you don't have Remy, uh, you'll get even closer to the intubation success rate you will with paralysis. But understand, you're not gaining very much because by the time you've given them propofol plus or minus an opioid, they are 100% abnic. And therefore, what was the benefit of not giving paralysis in the first place? So all of this in the service is saying there's not too many reasons to do a facilitated intubation, which is completely different than doing a either completely awake or ketamine awake intubation. Does that make sense, Swami? It does. And I think the definitions here are so important because the facilitated is excluding those ketamine awakes, the ones that Josh was talking about that he was doing, he was using ketamine to facilitate the intubation, but then having to switch over to these other approaches. And I guess the question is with that facilitated intubation, if you're giving a big slug of propofol, or if you didn't have it and, and you did decide to use Atomidate, how much is the paralytic messing up things in addition to that facilitated intubation, in addition to that sedative that you're giving anyway? Such, such a great question. And it alludes to the reasons I do facilitated intubation sometimes. And basically the only time I do it is like the prototypical one, status epilepticus patient, right? I could use succinylcholine, no problem, and get them back to knowing whether they're seizing or not. Eight, 10 minutes of the doses we're using, right? 
Or I could just give a big slug of propofol, which I want to do anyway, because it's going to cut down on their potential to keep seizing, right? Big slug of propofol is a real nice thing to have in a patient with status epilepticus. And then I'm going to know instantly if they're still seizing. And I'll, I am able to intubate patients with propofol alone almost every time, just like most of you who have any skills at laryngoscopy can. And if it turns out I'm having trouble, then I just paralyze them. And if I give something like rocuronium, then I could always give sigomedics to reverse it and know if they're seizing or not. But it's just easier and saves a ton of money to just not use the paralytic. Have it drawn up. It's there. It's ready to go. And just give them a big slug of propofol. And I'm talking big. We're talking like 200 milligrams of propofol for a status epilepticus patient because I'm not worried about their hemodynamics. And if I have a hemodynamics tank, I'll just give them some norepinephrine or epinephrine. And I'll tube them. And now I know instantaneously whether they're seizing or not. That's the protypical case of where I'm going to do a facilitated intubation. So basically, the only time I do it is when I want to have an immediate return to neurologically accessible baseline. When's another case? Okay, I want to intubate a patient, but I want to be able to get a neuro exam right away. Now, you know, this is an even more fraught case than the status epilepticus patient because uh, neurocritically ill patients, you really want to optimize your intubation success rates. And so maybe, you know, taking even the small amount of your success potential away by not giving the paralytic, it's not worth it. And again, you could always reverse your rocuronium, or if you choose to use sucks, then you'll, you know, 10 minutes later, you could tell your neurosurgeon, okay, they're examinable. But it's really nice to have an immediate neuro exam. So sometimes I'll do a facilitated intubation such that I could immediately say this is an accessible patient. In general, by the time the propofol wears off, the sucks would have worn off as well, or you could have given the sigomedics. It's not a great indication. There's not too many good reasons if you don't have ketamine to do a facilitated intubation in this day and age. If any of the listeners could think of another good reason, I'm not, on the top of my head, these are basically the only case I do it, and even then it's rare. Let me know. But it's basically for a patient you want immediate ability to assess or you want an immediate return to spontaneous ventilation. And other than that, I can't see any great reason to just not give the paralytics. Let me ask a follow-up on that. With the not using a paralytic, how much does that change the results of your laryngoscopy in terms of, am I going to be really stimulating the back of that throat? Am I going to cause other issues by losing that paralytic in those circumstances? Yeah. Well, you know, your, your reflex responses are not going to be affected by paralysis. Those are going to be present regardless, you know, because that, that's on the afferent limb. So you're not blunting any of that by giving a paralytic. So you're not going to have any different effects. On and it's also why you mentioned that you would give the propofol, but you would also use an opiate, which actually will blunt some of that response to laryngoscopy. Sure. If you care about that, then potentially you should just do a neurocritical care intubation. If that's really a concern, if you think that they have a high ICP, I would not be doing a facilitated intubation. I wouldn't be messing around in any way, shape, or form. I would do a full-on neurocritical intubation. Facilitated is not the case because you're prolonging in general the time that you're going to be stimulating the patient because it, without the paralysis, it's always going to be a slightly or more than slightly harder intubation. And therefore, in general, you'll be stimulating the patient more with your laryngoscope. So if it's a patient I think is high ICP in addition to whatever the hell is going on with them, I would not be messing around with facilitated intubation. I would do a full-on neurocritical care intubation. And that might be a topic for a future show, Swami. Oh, it sounds like a good one for us to get into. Let's get back a little bit to what Josh was talking about, because Josh was saying initially he was going in with the ketamine facilitated approach, the ketamine only, and keeping those patients awake. 
in that circumstance that he was talking about, these patients who are hypoxemic, they had the soft blood pressures. Is that your approach for that group? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, physiologically difficult airways that revolve around hypoxemia, hypotension, or the combination between the two are really, in my mind, uh, the perfect case for an awake intubation. And if you don't have the skills to do a topical awake, then doing a ketamine awake makes a lot of sense. And then the fact that it's going to take you longer to intubate is not a problem anymore because they're continuing to breathe during the intubation, which is why for me, ketamine is the only agent that really shows a lot of benefit to the patients he's describing. Once there was no ketamine left anymore, I really think just switching back to RSI is the way to go. I mean, I guess that's really what I wanted you to get to. Once that ketamine is gone, you've exhausted that supply. And we saw lots of different shortages throughout this pandemic. In that case, you're going to go back to a full RSI with a paralytic because you don't see much of a benefit to using Versed or Atomidate or Propofol alone for those intubations. Yeah, pretty much that's where I would stand. Summary. Okay, and I think that's really the, the point we want to leave people with. If you've got ketamine and you're comfortable with this approach, the ketamine facilitated approach, that is a nice way to keep the patient breathing, give yourself the time, not mess too much with their hemodynamics, but there really aren't other agents that we can substitute in for that ketamine when it's missing. And the facilitated intubation with just propofol alone, or if you wanted to use Versed or Atomidate, which you're saying is not really a great thing, it's a very limited scope of patients where you're going to have to apply that. Exactly right. All right, Scott, this is great. And Josh, I hope we have answered your question well. I think it all comes back to make sure you're well-stocked with ketamine. And when you think you're well-stocked, just get a little more. Keep <laughs> it on the side because you really want that ketamine around. Absolutely. Eye Emergencies with Dr. Jesse Werner, part two. It's time for a little core content review. And we are here with Dr. Deidre St. Peter, who is an ophthalmology fellow at the University of Colorado. And she's back with us to talk about ocular emergencies. Now, last time we talked about CRAO or central retinal artery occlusion. And today we're going to talk about acute angle closure glaucoma. And this is a topic that is always going to be on board exams. It is a true emergency when we see it in the emergency room, and we absolutely have to have this knowledge down cold. Deidre, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Deidre, quickly remind us, what exactly is acute angle closure glaucoma? So acute angle closure glaucoma is when the pressure inside of the eye becomes acutely elevated. That's because someone's iris is actually blocking the drainage system inside of the eye. And so as you mentioned, it is a true ocular emergency. To review a little ocular anatomy, so you've got the sclera, which is the white part of the eye, and the cornea is the clear part that you see when you're looking in the mirror. Sitting flat behind the cornea is the iris or the colored part of the eye. And in the center of the iris is the pupil. That's the black hole that you see in the mirror. So right where the cornea, which is the clear surface and the iris, which is the colored part of the eye meat, is where the drainage system of the eye is. It's kind of tucked away in a little corner, and that's called the trabecular meshwork. And basically, in acute angle closure glaucoma, the trabecular meshwork is completely blocked up, and it causes an acutely elevated eye pressure, which is an emergency because you can lose vision super quickly if that happens. Yes, thank you. And isn't there a schlem in there somewhere? Someone's named Schlem. That's Mr. Schlem to you, Ivy. Great memory. So yeah, there's a Schlem. There's a Schlem's canal. <laughs> so basically, the trabecular meshwork covers Schlem's canal, and Schlem's canal is the true like drainage system that goes all the way around 360 around the eye. So whenever we're doing like this is pretty detailed, but whenever we're doing angle-based surgery in glaucoma, which is my specialty, we're trying to open up Schlem's canal and uh, get a little bit more water and aqueous from the front of the eye flowing into Schlem's. So yeah, great question. 
All right. Thanks for that reminder. So how will a patient with acute angle closure glaucoma typically present? So typically patients with acute angle closure glaucoma are going to have elevated pressures and they're going to go up really quickly and cause some symptoms. So they'll typically have pain, blurred vision, colored halos around lights, frontal headaches. And in some cases, if it's super elevated or the patient's really not used to it, they could even have nausea and vomiting. Classically on our board exam, this is described as someone who walked into a dark movie theater. It's always a dark movie theater. They have acute onset of pain, and then they come into the emergency room with a mid-range dilated non-reactive people. That's sort of the classic question. Do you feel like that's a pretty good explanation of how patients might come in? Definitely, yeah. Like the history of a patient being in a dark movie theater That's important because when we're in dark settings, the pupil tends to dilate. So people that have very narrow drainage systems, when the iris dilates even more, that iris can become bunched up and clog up the drainage system even more. So that's the important part of the history is being in the dark setting. I would add that if a patient has a history of recent dilation, um, I've seen patients who have gone to their ophthalmologist, been dilated, gone home, and then presented to the emergency department that night with angle closure or glaucoma just because of the recent dilation. Also, if they're having these episodes in dark rooms, like tearing at night before bed, or even if they've had history of tearing and waking up in the middle of the night with eye pain, that's something to keep in mind too. You also want to review their medications. Like any other disease, medications can affect things. So anticholinergics or sympathomimetics, anything that can dilate the pupils, could be a predisposing factor for acute angle closure glaucoma. Also, history of farsightedness. So as I mentioned, there should be space between the cornea, which is the surface of the eye, and the iris, which is the colored part of the eye. And people with really short eyes, things are just cramped up. And so if people have farsightedness, really thick Coke bottle glasses, that could be a sign that they're just at risk for angle closure as well. You always want to ask about recent surgeries or laser treatments also. Just a good thing to ask about when patients are coming in with any ocular emergencies. The signs that you'll see on exam include a red eye, a fixed dilated pupil, and sometimes the cornea itself will even look cloudy or hazy. And you mentioned that there might be this history of patients when they are going to bed at night or if they're in a dark room, they have some tearing or eye pain. And is that because they're having trouble with their drainage in that setting? It very well could be. It could be that at night when the pupil's dilating, that iris is bunching up clogging the trabecular meshwork, clogging the drainage system inside of the eye, and causing the pressures to rise. That could be a sign that the patient is having recurrent episodes of elevated eye pressures when the pupil is becoming dilated at night or in dark settings. So you said that some people just have really narrow drainage systems. What is the story with that? That's a really good question. There's been a lot of recent studies looking into this. Some people are predisposed to narrow angles just because of the way their eyes are shaped. Those people tend to have farsightedness where they can see well at far distances and not as well up close. Like I mentioned, they're the ones that have Coke bottle glasses or really thick glasses. And as we age, we're more likely to get acute angle closure glaucoma or more predisposed? Very good point. So all glaucoma is more common at higher ages. The reason that angle closure glaucoma becomes more common in older populations is because we talked about the cornea being the shiny, clear surface in the front of the eye, and the iris is the colored part sitting behind it. Behind the iris is our lens. 
as we age, that lens becomes what we call a cataract, where it becomes cloudy and it becomes larger with age. As that cataract is pushing up on the iris, it can be narrowing the angle and causing the angle to be at higher risk for closure. And so that's why in people who are older with larger cataracts, they can become more predisposed to acute angle closure attacks. So just to quickly review the things I'm going to look for in my patient, have they had a history of recent dilation? When they go into dark rooms, have they had any episodes where they tear up or when they're going to bed at night, do they have episodes of eye pain or tearing? I'm definitely going to review their meds as I do for all my patients. I'll ask them if they have a history of farsightedness. And if they're not sure, I'll just take a quick look at their glasses and see how thick they are. And then maybe inquire about recent surgeries or laser treatments that could predispose them to this. Does that sound about right? That's perfect. Yeah. Perfect sum up. Awesome. Did you want to talk a little bit about how you diagnose acute angle closure glaucoma? So the slit lamp is the tool that we use most frequently in our clinic. It's, of course, a microscope so that you can see the ocular structures in fine, detailed view. When we're examining patients with acute angle closure glaucoma, we're doing a few things at the slit lamp. One of the easiest ways to tell if the angle appears closed or at risk for closure is to do what's called the von Herrick test. And that's where you take a very narrow beam, you place it at about a 60 degree angle, and you move from the sclera, which is the white part of the eye, very slowly through the limbus, which is where the sclera meets the cornea, and onto the cornea. As you go from the sclera, which is the white part of the eye, to the cornea, which is the clear surface of the eye, sitting behind the cornea should be the iris. And that iris shouldn't be stuck up to the back part of the cornea. There should be space between the cornea and the iris. That's kind of telling you in a cheapish way that the angle is technically open. And so if the iris is pasted up to the backside of the cornea when you're looking with this slanted narrow beam, then that could mean that the angle is either closed or at risk of closure. As ophthalmologists, we say that there should be at least a quarter of a central corneal thickness between the cornea and the iris, meaning that for people who are less experienced at using the slit lamp, it should look like a little narrow space. The other things you want to look for in patients with acute angle closure would be like a hazy cornea. So that could indicate swelling of the corneal surface. As the pressure gets super high, the cornea can get edematous. Red eye, so the eye could look injected. And then mid-dilated pupil would be another thing to look for as well. You mentioned a hazy cornea. That's something I'll be able to see just with my naked eye. You may be able to see a hazy cornea with your naked eye. It sometimes can be a lot harder than you think to tell if the cornea has edema. Maybe easier on the slit lamp. Again, it's not like a definite requirement of angle closure glaucoma. It's just something you might notice, like a hazy, cloudy, smoky appearing cornea. And the other thing I always kind of wondered about that mid-range dilated pupil, is that pupil going to be reactive or not really? It'll be slowly and poorly reactive. And the deal with that is that it's ischemic. And so that's one of the reasons it's just kind of slow to react or non-reactive at all. And just to remind our listeners of the five vital signs of the eye, this is something that we covered last time when we were talking, and I think it's a great reminder. These are things that every ophthalmologist is going to want to know when we call you. It's visual fields, intraocular pressure, best corrected vision or visual acuity, pupillary exam, and eye movements. Perfect. Yeah. And I think I mentioned this last time, but best corrected vision, meaning if they're you know over 40, they might need readers to see up close. 
If they need distance glasses, make sure that they're wearing their distance glasses. Those things are super important because I'm 2200 without my glasses on, but that doesn't mean I have an ocular emergency. Talk to us about the intraocular pressure and the tonopen. Perfect. Yeah. The tonopen is really tricky and it can be particularly bothersome for people who aren't well-versed at using the tonopen. It's kind of one of those machines that takes some practice and there's definitely some technique involved with using the tonopen. The thing that I wanted to mention is that when you're using the tonopen, you should, of course, first give preparacane to the eye. So make sure that it's nice and numb so that the patient's not uncomfortable. You place one of the disposable tips on the end of the tonopen. And then the most important technique for using the tonopen is making sure that you're not pushing on the globe. And so to do that, I usually take my thumb and my forefinger and I place it near the eyelids. So on the bottom and top portion of the eyelids. And you open up those eyelids and you tack it to the orbital rim. So tacking it to the orbital rim ensures that you're not pushing on the globe while you're trying to keep those eyelids open. Patients aren't going to want to keep their eyelids open, so you're going to have to hold them open yourself. But making sure you're tacking it up to that orbital rim is super important because then you're not falsely elevating the eye pressure. Once you've opened the eyelids, tacked up the eyelids to the orbital rim, then you take the tip of the tonal pen, make sure it's flat and flush to the surface of the cornea. I usually go right in the center of the pupil. And you tap a few times until you hear the beeping. And when the beeping stops, you should have a reliable eye pressure. Overall, it's not terribly difficult to use. The most important thing to remember is to not press on the globe because that will falsely elevate the pressures and it can become a problem. Then you get an unreliable reading. So what are the numbers we're looking for in acute angle closure glaucoma? So typically the pressure is going to be over 25. I would say that in most cases it's over 30. If it's under 25, I would be kind of rethinking things. And typically with that tonopen, we're not just taking one pressure. That's something I should mention as well. You should take like two, three pressures just to make sure that they're all lining up. They're going to be different every time. That's not something to worry about. But as long as they're consistently like, you know, within five points of one another, then you can be a little bit more sure that the pressure is actually in that range. So if you test the pressure and it's less than 30, does that rule out a diagnosis of acute angle closure glaucoma? It really doesn't. I think less than 30, you should still call and talk to us. If it's less than 25, I'd say it'd be a little bit less likely that it's true acute angle closure glaucoma. And then you have to ask yourself, what, am I catching the tail end of it? Did this patient break their angle closure glaucoma themselves and I'm catching the tail end? Either way, I think it's reasonable to call ophthalmology and at least discuss with us. It'd be less likely if the pressure is less than 25. Okay. So Deidre, is there any one thing that clinches this diagnosis? Not really. I wish I could say that there was. It's usually taking the big picture. So seeing if the patient's having that mid-dilated pupil the injected red eye, decreased vision or halos around lights, headache, in some cases, like I mentioned, even nausea, vomiting, and then if their pressure is high on the tonal pen as well. So kind of taking the big milieu of, of everything and putting everything together. Okay. Well, that's kind of a bummer, but that also makes sense. So we really <laughs> need to take the entire picture in and consider the patient as a whole. Can we review the treatment? What are the things that we should start immediately in the emergency department? Great question. So topical medications are usually what we want to start right off the bat, as long as they're not contraindicated. We use timolol, which is a beta blocker, dorzolamide, which is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, and we also use prostaglandin analogs like latanoprost, and the final agent that we use is bromonidine, which is an alpha agonist. So 
if you have some combination of those classes of medications, beta blocker, carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, alpha agonist, or prostaglandin analog, getting those started right off the bat is super important. You want to give them all. You can wait a couple of minutes between the drops, but you certainly don't have to. Give all of the drops, wait five minutes, give all of them again, wait five minutes, give a third dose. So we typically do three rounds of max medical therapy. After about 30 minutes, the patient should have responded to these drops. So recheck the pressure at that time. If the pressure is still high, then we typically move on to bigger agents like IV Diamox or even osmotic agents like Manitol. If you're thinking of moving on to IV Diamox or IV osmotics like Manitol, ophthalmology should be on board at that time and they can review the medical history and make sure that the patient is safe to take those medications. But like I said, we typically give rounds of max medical therapy before moving on to the big guns like Diamox or Manitol. And this is a kind of emergency where if I'm in a rural emergency department, I don't really have access to ophthalmology. I'm going to transfer this patient, correct? You should get the ball rolling on transferring the patient for sure. Time is optic nerve. And so if these patients have really elevated pressures for a prolonged amount of time, that could cause permanent vision damage. And so it's really important to get the ball rolling on a transfer, especially if it's going to be a while before you can get the patient to a setting where they can see an ophthalmologist. Because what is the definitive treatment for this? Definitive treatment is twofold. So the first would be an LPI, which is a laser peripheral iridotomy. This is when we use a laser to essentially poke a hole in the iris. This should allow the iris to fall back, which allows the drainage system to open up and start functioning again. Sometimes, as I mentioned, patients just have really big cataracts. So even after LPIs, that cataract needs to come out. So it's twofold. LPI or laser peripheral iridotomy, and eventually cataract surgery if that's the impetus for the angle closure. Do you have a sense of how long it takes for a patient to actually lose their vision if they present with acute angle closure glaucoma? What kind of timeline are we talking about? So it varies from patient to patient. It really depends on if they have a history of chronic angle closure on top of this acute angle closure setting. If a patient has these episodes where their pressure is going up and going up and going up and they're not catching it and nobody knows about it, then they could have damage to the optic nerve in the back of the eye and have glaucoma already that they don't know about. If that's the case, then they've already lost a significant portion of their nerve. And so having high eye pressures for even hours on end could cause some significant vision loss. So it's really important to get the ball rolling, start treatments right away, and call ophthalmology so that we can come in and assess things. Summary. Thanks, Deidre. So let me just do a quick review for everyone. Remember, acute angle closure glaucoma is an ocular emergency. It can be vision compromising. Time is eye. The signs include a red, watery, dilated, or mid-range pupil that's generally going to be sluggish to react, and there will be pain. You've got to remember the five vital signs of the eye and Intraocular pressure in the setting of acute angle closure glaucoma will generally be greater than 25. In fact, it's usually greater than 30. And we're going to start topical therapy as soon as possible with the guidance of an ophthalmologist. Anything else? That was perfect. That was perfect. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I hope that this kind of gave a little intro into using the tono pen too, because I know that that can be a huge headache for a lot of physicians. Again, remembering not to put any pressure on that globe is super important in these settings where you're looking for high eye pressures. Thank you, Deidre. 
Thanks, Jess. This was so fun. Thanks for having me back. Thanks again for listening to this round of Ocular Emergencies. This was part two. We did central retinal artery occlusion prior to this. This is acute angle closure glaucoma, and part three is going to be coming at you pretty soon. Time is optic nerve. Because one board in toxicology was not enough, he got two. Put your hands together for Dr. Sean North. North. And Stuart Swadron. All right. So, Sean, this is the moment that I know so many of us have been waiting for. It's part two of our three-part series, Body Stuffers, Packers, and Pushers. Stuffers, Packers, Pushers. It's how they hide their drugs. Drugs. Stuffers, packers, pushers. That last one's a bit dubious, but we said we're going to pull it off, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so uh, this is part two, and it's a very important uh, topic, body packers. And just before we go any further, let's all remind each other, Sean, please, what's the difference between a stuffer and a packer before we get into it? So a body stuffer is somebody who's generally trying to evade law enforcement or someone, and they swallow usually a poorly or loosely wrapped illicit substance. It's usually a smaller amount, but we worry sometimes more for them because the chance of it opening up and then becoming symptomatic is greater. Body packers are people who intentionally swallow very well wrapped packages, but many, many of them, up to a hundred or more. And if they rupture, they die. But fortunately, they don't usually rupture, but they can come in with some other problems. And their main purpose is to transport drugs. Right. And so, you know, I've been on the receiving end, as have you, for many of these cases, because we work at large central urban hospitals that are the recipients of the patients as they come from the airport, for example, with federal authorities. And so we've seen these these products. And it's remarkable, the quality assurance, the consistency with which these things are wrapped. It's, it's astounding because, uh, you know, it stands to reason there's a lot of money at stake. That's true. I mean, it is. If you haven't had the chance and you do get the chance to see them, they're amazing. They're usually condoms is usually what I've seen most commonly. And they're double wrapped, but they can use balloons. It's generally some latex-based thing that they use. And then they'll actually cover it in wax. And the wax is often to decrease the chance of leakage and rupture, but also probably to help facilitate them swallow. I don't know how they swallow so many of these, but this is like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of drugs. Uh, or I was going to say millions. Possibly, uh, yeah, absolutely. Cases, yeah, depending right? on what the drug yeah. is. I think that these occur for the most part in the context that we just discussed where you know they're identified sometimes by a, a, an x-ray machine at the airport, a plane film. There's suspicion you know, from intelligence, that type of thing. And so when they come to us, for the most part, they're very anxious. You know, there's a lot of, and it's sometimes hard to separate that out from, is this possibly a drug effect, right? And otherwise asymptomatic, you know, like it's clear that there, there's not a big rupture going on here. The, the vital signs are relatively normal. And so that's definitely the most common scenario. So I want to talk about that first. How, how do you approach that situation? So as you mentioned, very often these patients are going to be anxious, and it's quite understandable, right? They're in custody. If it was an opioid and they're sleeping and not breathing, well, that's straightforward. But these people usually settle down pretty quick. So maybe I'll give them a dose of lorazepam, but often it's just watching them. So unlike body stuffers, where imaging is quite limited, meaning if you have a negative abdominal x-ray or a negative CT does not mean that there is not drug in there. 
Abdominal x-rays are really good, but CT is even better when you talk about body packers. So I rely heavily on my imaging. If I'm concerned enough, I'm probably going to go straight to CT, but in our jail ward, I can get an abdominal x-ray fairly quick, where CT, I might be waiting hours. And you can just start, you know, if you see it on abdominal x-ray, you know the answer, right? So you're going to start talking about GI decontamination would be the next step. Now, I hope I didn't skip ahead here on our, Sean, because we should be putting these patients on a monitor first, right? I mean, even if they look okay, I, I, let's, let's just talk about that for a second. Of course, yeah. Thanks for bringing us back to reality, of course. These people can, as we mentioned, these are massive amount of drugs. And if they were to rupture, they can become quite fatal early. So, of course, you're going to get good IV access. You're going to have them on a monitor. You need to have eyeballs on them, right? You don't want them tucked away in some place where no one's going to find them until they're seizing or arresting or something like that. So you're absolutely right. Do all your typical stuff with your potentially critically ill patient, and then you get your imaging, and then we start moving forward from there. Yeah, and actually, I was going to say, Sean, that when we had these patients uh, uh, in the county jail, I would actually insist that we'd have the antidote at the bedside for whatever agent I knew was in there. So, you know, meaning large amounts of naloxone or meaning potentially large amounts of benzodiazepine, as the case may be. I think that is a great practice to do. And if you're able to do it, you should do it or make sure that your nursing staff and everybody working with you knows this is what I need. If stuff starts going down, let's get it because you don't want people running to Pixis and delaying a lot of time with these people because they can get sick quick. Okay, good stuff. I think we saved ourselves. We got the patient on the monitor in time and we've got eyes on as it were. Let's talk about that GI decontamination. Let's get into that whole morass. What are we going to do? There's hundreds of these packets in there. We got to get them out. Toot sweet. So for me, and I think a lot of toxicologists, if not most, the approach to a body packer is much more straightforward. Those body stuffers are just so variable. But so for a body packer, I like to use activated charcoal followed by aggressive whole bowel irrigation with polyethylene glycol electrolyte solution or go lightly. The reason why I like activated charcoal is it does two things. If they did have a small leak, ideally it'll start binding it up, but I use it as a marker. So when I see charcoal coming out the other end with my whole bowel irrigation uh, go lightly, I know that I'm moving things along. Hopefully I'm moving packets along as I'm moving along that activated charcoal, but it's really the mainstay is going to be whole bowel irrigation with polyethylene glycol electrolyte solution. So how are you going to do that? I give these patients antiemetics, usually on Dancitron or something like that, because they're going to get GI distension from us giving these large volumes. So what's a large volume? I usually start off at a liter per hour, but I want to get up to two liters per hour or even more. I have found over the years that people just can't drink that much. So I will often put an NG tube down and just have the nurses do these aliquots over time. And that really is it. We want to have those patients getting these large volumes up to ideally two liters per hour until we start seeing stuff come out the other end. There is no maximum dose of go lightly that we give. So we just continue giving it until we start seeing clear effluent, ideally several stools with no packets left. And Sean, say that you're not sure that all the packets are out, or you are pretty sure that you're counting 25 packets on your CT and you've only seen 20 come out despite the fact that maybe the effluent is getting clear? If you're concerned at all and you don't think they're all out, just hold on to them and admit them to a monitored setting. Or for us, we would leave them generally in our jail ED. We can keep them there for a long time. 
All right. So that all sounds fine and dandy. And it sounds like you don't really need a lot of other people to help you for the average case with that. But so often you see people calling GI, you see people calling surgery on these cases. I want to talk about that. Is that always necessary? When is it necessary? I would say for the vast majority of cases, it's not necessary. If they're asymptomatic, no matter what the drug is, you don't need to involve surgery or GI. Now, I've had patients, as you've had patients, Stuart, who presented from quote unquote home because they'll just say, hey, you know what? It's been days and days and days and ain't nothing coming out the other end. They're not even having any gas. So they're presenting with SBO. And SBO is the thing that you can see, I wouldn't say commonly, but you can see it from these. So they come in and they have an SBO. So what am I going to do? Of course, I'm going to get imaging. It's going to be CT for me. And that's when I'm going to get a surgeon involved, right? Because this is a different problem. Now, just to divert for a second for gastroenterology, it's pretty uncommon that these packets are only in the stomach, right? So endoscopy, we don't recommend that because those snares can open up packets. And again, going from below, that's not generally the reason. When is the other case you're going to get a surgeon? Now, if it's an opioid and we're seeing so much fentanyl, I mean, we're just seeing so much fentanyl as everybody is, you don't need a surgeon for that even if they're leaking generally. What you do is you just put them on a naloxone drip and you still ideally give them the whole bowel irrigation. If it's a big problem, pull in your surgeons. But if it's a sympathomimetic, that's a different thing. Now, these people get super sick quick. They can die not uncommonly when these things rupture, but that's when I'm pulling in a surgeon because that's, that's a completely different ball game. But for this straightforward SBO, call surgery. So Sean, most of these patients are in custody and that's certainly been my experience, mostly uh, under federal custody actually, but there are still medical legal issues that come up. Let's talk about that a little bit. What's your experience been? So with any of these patients that I manage, and it's not uncommon that you'll have these patients that just decline treatment. They say, I'll, I'll talk to them, the residents will speak to them, and we'll make sure everybody's clear about the risk, and they just decline treatment. And they have the right to decline treatment. So like any other AMA, I make sure that they understand, can verbalize back, document well, and then they get discharged for us. It's generally to the jail. And fortunately, my experience is they generally go to like a holding cell that doesn't have any running water. It has a toilet, but doesn't have any ability to flush because law enforcement wants to capture these things. What I like from it from a kind of medical standpoint is that they're not in the general population, that they are someplace that if they get symptomatic, hopefully someone will notice it and bring them back to us quicker because I've had patients over the years that have gone back to the general population and have had quite poor outcomes, even a few deaths over the years from being in there. So I think that's one of the big things. When we talk about body stuffers, I have not, in my experience that I can recall, had a judge come to me in the ED and said, you have to get a surgeon to cut this stuff out. That just said, I'm sure people have had that experience. But just know if you don't see these frequently, that is not, at least in my experience, an infrequent occurrence when the patient just declines therapy and says, I want to leave against medical advice. Summary. All righty then. Quick and dirty summary of body packers. Remember, these are different than body stuffers in that they're essentially professionally wrapped packets of drugs in the dozens and dozens usually. They are typically used for the illegal transport of drugs. They would be lethal if they ruptured. Imaging is essential in these patients to confirm the diagnosis, and CT is Dr. Nort's go-to to be very precise when there's a question of how many packets might be in there. Now, what happens in the majority of these cases is that the patients are asymptomatic. These professional packets seldom rupture, and 
they're placed in custody, usually in some place where law enforcement can count the packets as they come out in the stools. And so they usually don't have a flush toilet in those facilities. And the medical management, from our point of view, is that these patients should be on a monitor with IV access unless they refuse or unless it's been some time and it's been established that the situation is stable. But having said that, these packages can leak and they can rupture. And so when we first encounter these patients, it's important for us to put them on a monitor, get good access, and be prepared for what might happen if there is a rupture. The two main agents that we might encounter in these balloons are opioids, like heroin, and sympathomimetics, like cocaine. Of the two, sympathomimetics are way scarier because we can give those patients benzodiazepines and we can give them other sedatives, but essentially, if there's a massive release of a sympathomimetic, it can overcome our ability to reverse it. And that's why we sometimes might get a surgeon involved if there's a huge amount of cocaine in there that we think might leak. And so the situation with opioids is different because we have a much more effective way of preventing the toxidrome, and that's with a naloxone drip, which we can effectively use, usually avoiding any invasive procedures. Endoscopy is generally not recommended for these patients. That's an important thing to know. And the mainstay of treatment for the vast majority of patients consists of charcoal to absorb any leaking drug, as well as to serve as a marker for bowel decontamination, like whole bowel irrigation, which Sean describes in detail. It's like his favorite subject. I heard you, Swadron. In terms of how to flush this stuff out. And the last thing that we need to know about body packers is the one important surgical complication that we do see is small bowel obstruction. And so if the patient is getting gradually distended and showing the signs of a bowel obstruction, especially not passing anything, uh, then you may need to get the surgeon involved at that point as well. So keep your eye out for obstruction. And that, friends, is a wrap. Stuffers, packers, pushers, it's how they hide their drugs. drugs. Stuffers, packers, pushers, drugs. In the December EMA, Mike and Sanjay discussed an article in the Journal of Surgical Research entitled, Pre-Hospital Narrow Pulse Pressure Predicts Need for Resuscitative Thoracotomy and Emergent Intervention After Trauma. This was by the crew at LA County and USC, including our very own Kenji Inaba. Now, the paper clearly wins an award from the Rick Bucata School of Title Writing, tells you exactly what you need to know right in the title without reading the rest of the article. But I actually spent a couple of minutes and read the rest of the article. And what I realized is I haven't thought about pulse pressure probably since I was a medical student. And what we need to do is kind of discuss what it is, why we should be using it, should we be using it, and what the role is in trauma. And to discuss that, I've got emergency doc and trauma team leader at St. Mike's in Toronto, Dr. Chris Hicks back on the show to talk about it. Hicks, thanks for joining us. What up, Swami? What's popping? Chris Hicks. Oh, it's the same old, same old Hicks. It is so good to have you back on. It's been way too long. Let's get into this topic. I, I'm Hopefully, none of us will be suffering a traumatic injury anytime soon, but we're definitely going to see him at work. And this pulse pressure issue that's in the paper, like I said, I haven't thought about it in a long time. So let's just start basic. What is pulse pressure? Well, pulse pressure is the difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressure. Pretty simple calculation to make. And like you, I could remember, you know, giving this some thought and being tested on it back in medical school and in some abstract way, thinking about how it might apply to the patients that I see in shock, whether the pulse pressure is wide or narrow. 
But until this paper came out, until you asked me to take a look at it with you, I hadn't really thought about its implications for clinical practice. In the study that we're looking at, they focused on narrow pulse pressure as an indicator of badness. How do we define narrow pulse pressure? I, obviously, the normal blood pressure is 120 over 80. That would give us a pulse pressure of 40. What is a narrow pulse pressure? And what exactly does it mean to have a narrow pulse pressure? There's no universally accepted definition of what a narrow pulse pressure is, and they acknowledge that in the paper. But for the sake of discussion and analysis, they define it as less than 30 millimeters of mercury. And what a narrow pulse pressure implies, particularly in a patient who's in shock, and, and for the sake of this discussion, more specifically hemorrhagic shock, is a patient who's low on circulating volume. They point to a narrow pulse pressure as an early indicator of a patient that may have bled out extensively. And so why is that? Well, you get a little bit of thought to the physiology. If you're hypovolemic, you know, a lot of these patients are young, healthy patients with normal functioning hearts, and they can give their peripheral vasculature a good squeeze and increase their heart rate to compensate for low circulating volume. And so part of what you're seeing with a narrow pulse pressure is that peripheral squeeze, that you know, sort of surge of endogenous vasopressors, so to speak, to get your systemic vascular resistance up in an attempt to maintain perfusion. Now, that squeeze doesn't always translate to perfusion. And I think it's an important reminder in these hypovolemic hemorrhagic shock patients of why pressors are often not a good idea to reach for in a patient that's bled out a bunch, because many of them are already showing you by way of a neural pulse pressure, that sort of maximal squeeze already. And what they need is volume to help them compensate and maintain better cardiac output. This is part of why if you give, for example, norepi to a patient who's hypotensive and bleeding, it just doesn't work very much. And I think it's important to contrast that with other causes of shock where you might see the pulse pressure as being not just normal, but perhaps wide. So this is a very different sort of picture in a patient with a distributive shock like sepsis or anaphylaxis or you know, more pertinent to trauma, neurogenic shock, where you lose sort of sympathetic tone. You may in that circumstance see a wide pulse pressure, and they don't get into that in this paper. But, you know, in both directions, it's a reminder that the pulse pressure measurement can give you an indication, you know, along with other clinical indicators of what the etiology of shock is and what you might respond with. Narrow pulse pressure we're going to define as less than 30 millimeters of mercury, the pulse pressure being systolic minus diastolic. If the pulse pressure is narrow in the setting of trauma, we're talking about hemorrhage or, or major hemorrhage. They are volume down. We need to give them volume. Let's get to the findings in the actual paper itself. What did they find in this article in terms of what pulse pressure meant for emergency interventions? They categorized patients into patients who had either a narrow pulse pressure or were hypotensive versus everybody else. And in the analysis, kind of put them in those three categories. The patients who were hypotensive in, in all cases had a higher risk of need for urgent operative intervention or acute trauma intervention. And I think that's, that's intuitive. But Interestingly, then, the patients with the narrow pulse pressure who weren't hypotensive fit into this intermediate category. They weren't quite as bad as patients who were hypotensive in terms of need for operative intervention and need for trauma intervention, things like blood transfusion and so on. But they were certainly sicker than patients that didn't have either one of those two things. So that's what they found. When you read this article, what were the things that popped up in your mind as interesting things, interesting findings in this huge database? Well, it's as you started off by saying, it's kind of an interesting reminder of a clinical observation that we can make pretty easily, but don't. And a narrow pulse pressure on the few times in my life where I've observed it, either being, I'll say abnormal, narrow or wide, it kind of reminds me of a long QT on an ECG in that when you look at an ECG and it just looks funny, but you can't put your finger on why. For me, that's always a reminder that, oh, it's probably that they have a long QT and it almost always is. Strange looking ECG, you don't know why, it's probably a long QT. 
I've done the same with blood pressure in the past. You look at somebody's blood pressure and you're like, that's just a weird number. And then you realize that, you know, the pressure is, you know, 91 over 76. And you're like, okay, I get that. That's abnormal. That's a narrow pulse pressure. So it is one of those things that, you know, if the, if the pressure just looks funny, but you can't put your finger on why, you may be thin slicing the vital signs and perhaps can glean a little more information from it with this paper as a reminder than you could before. I think the other important sort of takeaway, and they mentioned this in the discussion, is the importance of, well, I guess I'd call it physiology over mechanism. Mechanism gets a lot of play in trauma. And yet, from what we know of the trauma literature, actually predicts very little in terms of severity of injury, except maybe in elderly patients. But the issue of, I don't know if this is an issue where you are, Swami, but certainly where I am, the issue of patients who don't divert to a trauma center who should have, based on their pre-hospital vital signs and physiology, those patients do way, way worse. They have huge delays in their care. They bleed a lot more. They bleed a lot longer. And that's because they don't get to the care they need as fast as they possibly can. So again, just sort of one of a myriad of clinical indicators that might point a patient towards a trauma center and indicate they're a little bit sicker. The idea that sort of looking at a narrow pulse pressure in the pre-hospital setting as one of those indicators of need for diversion to a trauma center is an interesting proposition. Again, that has to be taken in context, you know, of the patient's overall injuries and their overall clinical status. But it's an interesting nudge, just like a single drop in blood pressure or a positive bleeding score or something might compel a pre-hospital service or a pre-hospital service provider to take a patient not just to the local hospital or the closest hospital, but to a trauma center for more definitive care. Anytime we have a patient with penetrating trauma, we know there is an increased likelihood of needing a thoracotomy or needing some other emergency intervention. How does narrow pulse pressure play into your decision-making in these patients? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the authors in this paper would probably tell you that, you know, you're not going to crack the chest because a patient has a pulse pressure of 20. Where this fits, though, and as the authors sort of get to in particular in patients that have penetrating trauma who have, you know, a higher likelihood overall of some sort of vascular source of hemorrhage or ongoing or active bleeding as a result of their injury, the narrow pulse pressure fits into that bucket of, you know, a transient drop in pre-hospital blood pressure, which even if it recovers spontaneously is indicated, is indicative of uh, the need for urgent uh, operative intervention or an increased shock index, you know, the heart rate over the systolic blood pressure, the crump factor, you know, patients with a high base excess and a positive fast and blood pressure less than 105. All of these things, you know, you can use as aggregate indicators for the presence of active hemorrhage. It fits, you know, in the same bucket as a patient who's a transient responder to volume. So if you give a patient who's hypotensive some blood and they get a little bit better and then they get worse again, again, that's sort of an indicator of active hemorrhage. And it's that active hemorrhage component that's, you know, the, the thing that you're trying to address by making a decision for early operative care. And so the, the narrow pulse pressure, much like the um, authors would argue, and it makes sense, I think, reflecting on it in my clinical, clinical practice as well, is just another one of those things that goes into the basket to say this patient has had significant hemorrhage already to this point, and they likely have ongoing active hemorrhage that's going to require operative care. It just gets your sort of situational awareness activated. It gets your level of attention up. I don't know that I'd be making any major immediate decisions based simply on this one clinical parameter, but it goes into that bucket of things that raises my suspicion of badness and, and compels me to make early preparations. And I think this makes a lot of sense because, again, if the patient is frankly hypotensive, if they have a stab wound in the cardiac box, those raise our awareness. Obviously, we are moving forward very rapidly with our assessment. Sometimes, though, when the blood pressure doesn't look so bad, we get a little bit reassured, even if the heart rate is a little bit high. So, again, taking this with a number of other factors as we're assessing the patient and again, alerting us to the fact that this is a patient who could decompensate and has a higher likelihood for decompensation. 
I, I think all of those things together are going to be really helpful in moving forward how we take care of those trauma patients. For sure. And you know, it, perhaps an early criticism of the paper is that they excluded elderly patients, which is a bit of a shame because that's a category of patients that that's likely to fool you, right? These are the patients where you know they normally are baseline hypertensive, their blood pressure is a little bit lower, but doesn't look they don't look overtly hypotensive. And things like, you know, a change in the pulse pressure, you know, a positive shock index, you know, if they score high on the, the rapid scale, the rapid assessment of bleeding and trauma, those sorts of things, particularly in elderly patients who can fool you, might compel you again to sort of, okay, let's have blood at the bedside. Let's have a conversation with our trauma surgeon. Maybe we don't go, you know, to the CT scanner for this patient with a positive fast who looks okay. Maybe we at least talk about, you know, diverting to the OR. It'd be nice to have another clinical parameter in elderly patients. It'd be nice to know what the pulse pressure would indicate in that population of patients. Because as you say, you know, a young patient with a stab wound to the chest is hypotensive, isn't going to fool many people, but elderly patients certainly can. And maybe that's where this group is going to go next. Summary. Pulse pressure is something that maybe we haven't thought about much since medical school, but has a relevance, especially in trauma, but maybe in other places as well. It's going to be defined as the systolic minus the diastolic pressure. You want to look for any pulse pressure less than 30, understanding that we don't have a clear definition of what a narrow pulse pressure is. But if it's under 30 in the setting of trauma, it should raise your awareness that this patient may decompensate, has a higher risk than the patient without a narrow pulse pressure for needing either a thoracotomy or some other emergency intervention in the emergency department or in that resuscitation space. And again, we're going to take this with a number of other factors, things like the transient drop in blood pressure, things like the shock index to help to determine how sick that patient is in front of us. Chris, thanks for talking about this and going through all of this. And I look forward, hopefully, to hearing from Kenji and his colleagues about the elderly group and how we can use pulse pressure in that group as well. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Wami. All right, so we're in a busy shift and another patient pops up on the board and he's a 40-year-old male and his chief complaint says needs an infusion. And that is correct. That is Britt Guest, who used to be the AIM fellow, who now is the CMO of Whoopup, who's putting on all of our virtual and soon-to-be in-person conferences. Britt Guest, continue. I immediately am kind of, like, curious. What type of infusion? I mean, common things being common. Maybe he's just anemic and needs blood, and this is going to be my easy case of the day. So I go to meet him, and he tells me he has hemophilia B. Okay, so it's not easy. No longer easy. Unfortunately, because he had received so many blood transfusions in his life, he had contracted HIV and hep C from infected blood. And so he tells me because he has hep C, his primary doctor does normal surveillance liver ultrasounds. And on his last ultrasound, they saw some suspicious lesions. So they will go and biopsy those lesions. They do a pancreatic biopsy and a liver biopsy. And that was two days before he's coming in to see me. Let me get this straight. You've got a hemophiliac. He's coming in for an infusion, air quotes. And he's had somebody put needles into his belly, pancreas, liver. Okay. I know where this is going. Yeah, easy, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Everything was fine. You gave him some of this stuff and he went home. Yeah, yeah. He says that after, you know, two days ago when he had the biopsies, went home, same day, felt fine. Has a little bit of abdominal discomfort just at the biopsy site, but otherwise he doesn't really have any complaints. So at this point, I'm kind of actually confused why he's here. Mm -hmm. He just says that, you know, he just is feeling not right. And he tells me that he normally infuses his own factor at home once a week. He's been starting his own peripheral IV for decades. Wow. But for some reason, he just couldn't do it today. He felt kind of dizzy. 
Okay, so somebody who's been self-injecting, doing their own IVs, and now he can't do it. All right. And that made you anxious. I can tell by the look on your face. (laughs) You are getting anxious. So on review of symptoms, he says he doesn't feel pale, no skin changes, no fever, no cough, no chest pain, no shortness of breath. He's not vomiting. He's not vomiting blood. He's not pooping blood. Everything else is fine. He just had some subjective dizziness while trying to start his IV, and that went away. On physical exam, you know, he looks like a chronically ill guy, but he's not acutely ill. His exam is very benign, and he has very, very mild tenderness just over the biopsy site, which honestly just seems kind of appropriate after Mm -hmm. a biopsy. So, of course, all the alarms are going off in my head, because why can't this guy start the IV that he started so many times before? So my initial game plan is let's get this guy his home dose of factor and repeat vital signs and do a quick chart biopsy so I can learn some more information about this guy. Mm -hmm. I also order a very super stat CT abdomen and pelvis because if something's going on, I'm pretty sure it's happening in his belly. He, like many of our hemophilia patients, comes with his own factor, which was amazing. And our nurse starts an IV. We get his factor repleted. And I order a CT. I look in his chart and his last hemonc note basically says he's got hemophilia B. He's got less than 1% factor 9. And he self-administers weekly home infusions of factor 9. And he gives himself about 6,200 units each week. Now, if you're like me, you would say to Britt, that makes no sense because we know that factor 9, factor 8 have really short half-lives. Like you got to repeat them every 12 hours. How could he possibly get any benefit from once a week uh, injection? It turns out that the chemists have done lots of cool things and actually many different things. And you can read a little bit about it in the Corpendium chapter that's now extended out the half-life of these puppies so that you can give them prophylactically about once or twice a week for both hemophilia A and hemophilia B. So there you have it. Pegylation and the stuff. So by definition, less than 1%, he is severe, severe hemophilia. He's not clotting anything without the factor replacement. You got it. So I check labs. He had labs done two days ago before the biopsy, and his lab two days ago is a hemoglobin of 14. The repeat labs that were drawn from triage from him coming into the ER are back, and his hemoglobin is 11. And if the transfusion chapter of corpendium is correct, and I have no reason to believe it, it's not, a three drop, a three grams per deciliter drop in your hemoglobin is about the same as three units of blood. This person has three units of blood somewhere. Can you guess where? It's not critically low, but why did he drop three points? Where did those three go? In two days. So then the nurse calls me. She's repeated the vital signs and they're not looking great. His blood pressure is now 90 over 70. His heart rate is 110. His respiratory rate is 20, and he's breathing well on room air. He's now also complaining of 10 out of 10 excruciating abdominal pain. What did you do to him when you examined his belly? (laughs) Oh, man, I wish I knew, because he went from just a little bit of really, really mild tenderness to like 20 minutes, 10 out of 10 pain. So in summary, we have this hemophiliac. We know that he just had procedures into his belly. He's probably bleeding into his belly. Mm -hmm. But why is it happening two days later? That was really confusing to me. I didn't have much time to think about it because he progressively gets more hypotensive and more tachycardic. And I immediately moved to giving this guy blood. I call down to the blood bank. We order O negative. I page him onk. I need their help because... I just gave him his home dose factor, but I know now that if I have a life-threatening bleed, 
I've got to probably replete him to 100%. And to be honest, Mel, I didn't completely remember how to do that. That's why you have Corpendium. You look it up. (laughs) (laughs) So I knew that I had to get him to 100% because of a life-threatening bleed. But I know that you get the calculations a little bit different for hemophilia A and hemophilia B. So for B, I think this is really important to review because we don't do it that often. And when you need to do it, you need to figure it out quick. So for B, one unit per kilogram of factor will increase the factor concentration by 1%. So to calculate it, your dose of your factor is their weight in kilograms times the increase that is desired. So for this guy, 100%. So he weighs 86 kilograms times 100. That means that I need to give him 8,600 units of factor 9 to replete him to 100%. And I just said that we gave him 6,200. I order another 2,400, and we get him repleted to 100. Now, if you're real smart, you might be thinking like I'm thinking, hang on, you gave him 6,000-ish units of a long-acting form of factor 9, and you just gave him two more to get him to 100%. But does that long-acting form, does that, is that fully functional right now? Does it leach out over time? Is it just working? Is that right? Or do you have to give him more of the short-acting form? Because the long acting actually sort of uh, works slowly over time and it's really not 6,000 units as uh, an acute ball. You know what I'm saying? There's a bit of confusion here in my head. We're going to get back to that. So the next thing that I look for in his notes, which is super important in these patients, is if he has a history of any inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Because that would make a really terrible situation even more awful. So just as a reminder, those inhibitors are antibodies that are made against either factor 8 or factor 9. And when a patient develops these inhibitors to the replacement factor, that basically means that the treatment is no longer that effective and that the patient's probably going to require a lot more factor to overcome the inhibitors. He didn't have any inhibitors, so we're Mm -hmm. very happy about that. Thank you. Okay, so we have the patient repleted to 100% and we've got two units of blood running. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. But the patient is not looking so great. He's Mm. becoming more hypotensive, and now he is just screaming in excruciating pain. I call surgery. Yes. I call interventional radiology. Thank you. I give him fentanyl. Yes. Surgery comes down, and they're not too excited about taking this guy to the operating room. If he's going to bleed to death from a biopsy, he could bleed to death from a surgery. Exactly. And so, and I do a quick fast because I'm convinced this guy has got to be bleeding in his belly. Unfortunately... Those liver lesions that he was talking about are everywhere, Mm. and I really can't see much on my fast. So surgery and IR both really want a CTA before they do any intervention. But how the heck am I going to get this patient, who's very unstable, to the scanner? Right, that's the old adage, you know, don't take an unstable patient to the CT scanner, which is, of course, not true. Sometimes you have to take an unstable patient to the CT scanner to get stuff done. So did you take an unstable patient to the CT scanner? You know, I stabilized him as much as possible. I gave him more blood. Mm-hmm. I started norepinephrine. Mm-hmm. And I get him to the scanner. He makes it through the scanner, but I happen to be working in a hospital where the scanner is on the second floor. That's upsetting. And the ER is on the bottom floor. That's upsetting. And an elevator ride is never a good thing. No. All right, so we get him through the scanner. Right as we're getting in the elevator to go back down to the ER, He has a massive episode of vomiting blood. Oh, great. Okay. So we rush him down to the ER. We get him back into his bed. And then he has a massive episode of bright red blood per rectum. Okay. 
So he is becoming more and more unstable by the second, and he's bleeding, and I can't figure out how to stop it. At this point, Hemonk has called me back, and on top of repleting his factor to 100%, they actually recommend starting a continuous factor 9 drip. Have you ever heard of that before? Nope. Yes. Makes sense, though. Why not? I mean, at this point, we're kind of just thrown in the kitchen sink. The other thing I ask Hemonk specifically is if there's any utility to TXA in this type of patient who's literally just bleeding out in front of me. Now, I know TXA is an antifibrinolytic medication, and that's really not his mechanism for bleeding. But again, kitchen sink at this point. Yeah, we're going to try and stop everything that stops clots forming and staying formed. So originally, Hemonk says, no, no, TXA isn't going to be really useful. They call me back a few minutes later and say, you know, this guy's bleeding from above. He's bleeding from below. He's incredibly hypotensive. Why don't you start him on Amicar? We gave four grams as a bolus. Stop, Amicar? What's that? Aminocaproic acid. Yeah, that one. It's kind of like TXA before there was TXA. (laughs) So we give him four gram bolus, start him on a one gram per hour drip. And at this point, I am on the phone with the radiologist to get me the fastest read on this CTA possible. So radiologist tells me, that there does seem to be a very large hematoma at the site of that pancreatic mass, probably where the biopsy was. And there's large central extravasation and it appears to be arterial and it's probably coming from the SMA. Okay, so he's having a massive GI bleed and he's also bleeding into his liver at the same time. He's just bleeding everywhere. Yeah, that's upsetting. So IR comes, they redline him to the IR suite and they actually are able to embolize the branch of the SMA that's bleeding. That's good news. It is good news. And then I was, you know, I was curious because I didn't quite understand why he had so much blood in his GI tract that was causing him to bleed. And they thought that one of those tumors actually eroded into the small Um, intestine. So we have multiple bleeds. Okay. So they embolize the branch of the SMA. They actually have to give a few more um, transfusions, but his hemoglobin stabilizes and the bleeding stops. Unfortunately, his hospital course was pretty complicated. He got very septic and eventually passed away. I had a professor in Australia, hematology professor, that said uh, with hemophilia, bleeding anywhere, anytime, and a large amount. So, Britt, in your readings, what would you have done differently? You know, the again, the Amicar, the TXA, it's kind of just like a Hail Mary. Right. The continuous factor, usually when you replete factor, it lasts for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of great literature and support for doing continuous Mm because once they're repleted to 100, they're repleted. They Mm -hmm. might just still be bleeding. So it's a little hard to know if more factor on top of that helps, but why not? Mm-hmm. And then I think the really important thing to remember is that these patients can have inhibitors. Right. And so repleting to 100% is the ideal goal. But if they have inhibitors, you might have to add a lot more factor on top of that. And sometimes they use activated factor 7 and stuff like that as well, according to the Corpendium chapter. But, you know, I'll be calling my hematologist, and now what? And please give me something else to give. But you can give activated factor 7, but sometimes you don't give it. And so it was a little confusing about when you do one and when you don't. Some people also give DDAVP because that increases von Willebrand and maybe that helps with the factors as well. So kitchen sink. Yeah. And it was tough because this guy was bleeding from his SMA. So it's definitely not a place that I could put pressure. Right. Although I think our friend Chris might want Reboa in this case. Reboa. Oh, I know. If Chris Cooler was here, he'd be like, Reboa, Reboa. Resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta is the new thing. Just watch it for ischemic limb. 
Summary. So the summary is haemophilia patients can bleed. Even these patients now that are on these long-acting forms that are taking them prophylactically, they can still bleed and that bleeding can be delayed. So when you've got a patient with a big bleed with haemophilia, full replacement, plus you might also do some other things like Amacar and uh, TXA. And if it's a compressible vessel, you're going to compress it. Sometimes you're going to have to get surgery involved, but also remember, think about IR, as in this case, IR might be able to ablate a bleeding vessel. And for me personally, I didn't realize that they'd been able to modify some of these factors so that they now could be given in such long-acting forms. And there is actually quite a bunch of them that are coming down the pipe. So go check out the Corpendium chapter. They're going to do some additions there about these long-acting forms and how you deal with them in the emergency department. So thanks to Brit. And remember, full replacement plus a couple of other things. And don't forget IR. She's an EMS physician at UC San Diego, Dr. Jenny Farah. Jenny Farah is back. She's from UC San Diego. She's going to be talking about, uh, you know, all things pre-hospital. I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine. I'm their base hospital medical director and the medical director for the Chula Vista Fire Department. So, Dr. Farah, what are we going to talk about in this little mini-series that we're going to divide actually into uh, separate little chunks? Ketamine and then all things controversial, because I feel like once you start talking about ketamine, you dip into a lot of other topics and it's almost impossible to talk about them in isolation because I really wanted to do that. First, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to talk about ketamine. I'm going to keep it nice and simple. We'll talk about the pharmacokinetics, you know, just keep it nice and very unsexy. And then I realized it's very boring and, you know, you can't really talk about ketamine without talking about where it falls into just general pre-hospital sedation practices. And then I feel like that always spills over into the controversy of terms like agitated or excited delirium. There are mm-hmm. some people who feel like that's not even a term that doesn't really exist. And then how do you not then spin off into the topic of custody deaths and deaths that happen, you know, while in custody? It all gets intertwined. And then you add on top all the public opinion about these things once it hits the media. And I just feel like as ER doctors, we're sort of in the middle of all this because we intersect these worlds quite a bit. And so let's let's just talk about it all. Let's just talk about it all and kind of do it unapologetically. We'll do it responsibly, but let's just talk about it for what it is. And, you know, hopefully we could talk about these things in isolation where appropriate, but also where the intersections are, because that needs to happen too. All right, that's okay. But there's one thing you can't do. You can't diss at all ketamine, the greatest drug in the history of mankind. <laughs> all right. So you can talk about the controversy, but the drug itself is beautiful, is wonderful. Ketamine. Beautiful. Residency, and we'd have like a journal club coming up, and everyone would be like, "If we just sit there and talk about ketamine, how great it is again!" Like the big eye roll, like I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> so you cannot have another ketamine journal club where we just sit here and go on and on and on. But the truth is, it is a great drug, and not just in the hospital setting, but in the pre-hospital setting too. It has a great safety and efficacy profile, and so it's not a shocker that just like the emergency department fell in love with ketamine so many years ago, so did the pre-hospital world. I think it's important though to first make that difference between when we're using ketamine for pain. So we're talking about sub-dissociative doses at that point, and that's usually somewhere between 0.1 to 0.3 mg per kg. So I think that's an important differential there, because when we start to talk about the sedation doses, they're much heftier. Then we're talking about 1 to 2 mg per kg, or even 4 to 5 mg per kg if you're doing it IM. So huge, huge difference there, and I think that's worth noting. 
because when you look at pre-hospital protocols, they all look different and represent those different dosages. And with that, you know, when you're looking at the research, you have to be mindful of what it is we're actually talking about, because the doses for pain, I think, are far less controversial, but they're far smaller. Yeah, and you heard that dose correct, four to five milligrams per kilogram. So if you've got a big person, you're talking, you know, four, five hundred milligrams of ketamine. And you need to also understand, too, that we're not talking about here in the emergency department. We're talking about in the pre-hospital care setting, where this is getting used more and more frequently. It's getting more used more frequently in the emergency department as well. But what does that environment look like? I think when you're talking about anything pre-hospital, it's important to consider just the environmental factors of what it's like having to sedate someone out in the field. I think when they interview or just ask for a physician's opinion. I think a lot of these physicians are thinking about their nicely controlled world of the emergency department, or if you're talking to an anesthesiologist, the OR. And the pre-hospital world is just not that simple. You know, many times you're chasing someone down an alleyway, or law enforcement is. They now have apprehended the person, and maybe you're in the middle of a very public space, or you're in the middle of a dark alleyway. It's just not the same parameters. It's not the same type of environment. So I think it's important for people to consider that. And then when a pre-hospital system or an EMS system is thinking about what they want to put on their ambulances, you know, is this something that could be safely stored in the back of an ambulance? You don't have a nice pharmacy set up inside your hospital. Is this something that's easy to administer IM? Is it something that gives you a favorable hemodynamic profile? Because a lot of medications, a lot of the narcotics that we typically use or the benzos that we typically use, all the EMS profiles usually have some type of vital sign parameters. Like you can only give this if the blood pressure is in a systolic below 100 or mm-hmm. below 90. You can only give this if the heart rate or the respirations are above this amount. So ketamine is a nice option to have because usually there's far less restrictions with its use. Because, you know, remember, you're, you're putting together an EMS protocol. It's a standing order in a, in a lot of cases, maybe with some online medical direction input. But lots of times you're going to have to just put this out there. And I can tell you most protocols have vital sign parameters and ketamine is a lot less limiting in that regard. Now we're talking about just general pre-hospital sedation. What do you want to use? Do you want to use Versed? Do you want to use Haldol? Do you want to use ketamine? It's not a shocker that when you look at all these drugs, ketamine is more favorable because, you know, you look at something like Haldol, do you really want to gamble with the QT prolongation? You look at something like fentanyl or Versed, do you really want to risk that respiratory depression that you see with those agents? So it's kind of a lesser of a lot of different evils, and it's not shocking that a lot of systems want to start using ketamine or are already using ketamine. So I was telling Ginny about an actual event that occurred right around when we were recording this. I was driving over to the studio from my home, and in the middle of the road was a floridly psychotic naked lady running around, putting a lot of people at risk because cars were swerving, and it was really, really a problem. She was either going to get hit by a car, or she was going to cause somebody to swerve and get killed themselves. Now, it turned out that some smart-thinking people parked cars in front and behind her and were calling 911, but I raised the question. If the police get there first, if the paramedics get there first, uh, how do you deal with this? Because this is an extraordinarily dangerous situation. This person is floridly psychotic and needs to be sedated as quickly as possible. How do you do that? Right. And when you look at news articles, when there's controversy because someone was administered ketamine and there was a bad outcome, you're usually looking at dosages at 250 to 500 milligrams IM. Because once you start to take into consideration a 200 plus pound individual, four to five mg per kg IM, not shocking that you're getting to these dosages. And that is exactly what what ends up happening in some cases that make the news. And then that's the big ticket sort of number that's put out there that is very impressive to people. But that isn't an an appropriate milligram per kilogram dose for intramuscular injection of ketamine. And so then, you you know, again, you get to that question of like when you're putting together your protocol for your EMS system, you know, what dosage are you going to be comfortable with? What agent will you be comfortable with overall? 
And and this is how, you know, this is how challenging these decisions are. You know, people think it sounds so simple, but when you sit down in a room with a bunch of people who work in the EMS system or with an agency, they're having to sit there and weigh the pros and cons of all the potential bad outcomes of all these different agents, just like what you said, Haldol, said ketamine, and coming up with the best dose to be used and, and what they should be looking at. And the, the research is a little bit limiting just because some of our pre-hospital data, there is some military data because they do use ketamine quite a bit in the military arena. In our pre-hospital setting, there's not as much civilian research out there as we would probably like. And again, you're looking at some studies that look mostly at sedation doses. It is not so much for pain control. Mm -hmm. So really hard to parcel out to find exactly what research you want to look at for pre-hospital use of ketamine. And for some of the data that's been released, uh, I'm looking at, you know, articles that have come out of Colorado or Hennepin, a lot of focus on the rates of intubation of these individuals who have been uh, sedated pre-hospital and then end up getting intubated in the hospital setting. And there's been some controversy with some of those studies just in looking at, well, was it just uh, the ED provider's discomfort with the level of sedation, or maybe the patient was simply just dissociated, mm -hmm. and that was what led to uh, the intubation that maybe would not have happened had the sedation took place in the emergency department and the provider saw the patient evolving. Hard to say, but there are some co-founders. And again, those that big question mark of intubation rates with these medications is, is also what tends to make the news uh, to us in the emergency world uh, for what people might grow concerned about. So what do some of these protocols look like that are using ketamine in the pre-hospital setting? Well, I found one. And here's a paper out of Florida. And they came up in this pre-hospital care setting with an approach to these severely agitated patients. So you've got a severely agitated patient, law enforcement gets there, they subdue the patient, then the ketamine is given at a dose of 4 milligrams per kilogram IM to a maximum dose of 400 milligrams. After the person's sedated, they get an IO, they uh, maintain their oxygen set, they put on the internal CO2, and then they actually, in this protocol, gave them some Versed in the hope that as they're coming out of the ketamine, they won't have emergency reaction. They report about 52 patients with this, that in almost every case, 50 out of the 52, they were rapidly sedated and it was great. In three cases, they had to deal with an airway issue, you know, respiratory depression. In two cases, that required them to intubate the patient. The time from when they gave the injection to when they got to the emergency department was about 20 minutes, and they thought that maybe this respiratory depression was because of the midazolam that they'd also received. Ah, but you see, there are two prospective pre-hospital care studies out of Minnesota, and they found in these studies, in quick summary, that this stuff really does reduce agitation very quickly compared to other agents, but they had a phenomenally high intubation rate in the Cole study of 39%. And there are some more studies out there, mostly sort of case series, and there's emerging you know, evidence within the emergency department, so we're getting more and more studies on that. When we use ketamine in the emergency department, we are not seeing the rates of uh, intubation being required that you see in this Cole study. So I think that it's kind of an outlier, although it's possible that these giant IM doses is a problem. You're getting rapid sedation, but you're also you know, making people stop breathing. A little hard to believe because we also know from the work on ketamine by Steve Green from 20 years ago, that you can give ketamine in enormous doses, enormous doses, and you don't lose your airway. So if you really want to have a deep, deep dive into this, go to Rebel EM and Salim Rezaei, who was a great friend of the show, did a wonderful deep dive on this in 2019. Well, at least what I've learned in my research of this, and again, I work in an EMS system that utilizes ketamine for pain, not agitation, much smaller doses, is I think when, when you review these protocols, what I have found is that a lot of them are written as protocols for agitation, period. Mm -hmm. And I think that is way too broad of a term. 
Because agitation can be simply someone who is not complying with evaluation. It could be 85-year-old grandma who's delirious from her UTI who doesn't want you checking her blood pressure. It can be the patient who is perhaps succumbing to excited delirium syndrome and really does need this level of sedation. I just think agitation is way too broad. And again, that's how most of these protocols are written. It's a protocol for agitation. And I think that tends to get used as a catch-all term for all things confused or difficult to deal with. And that's how it gets roped into a lot of law enforcement activity because those may be the types of terms you would use to describe those patients. And then that protocol ends up being applied to them, perhaps inappropriately. Summary. All right. So let's end it there. So this is the first one of this mini series we're going to be doing on pre-hospital care and sedation and agitation. And so what we learned today is ketamine is a rising star in the field of pre-hospital care. The doses I am are quite huge, much bigger than you used to. The literature is currently tiny with huge variations in the number of patients that are getting intubated because of the ketamine use. And we're not even sure exactly who the patients were in a lot of these studies. There'll be lots of links in the show notes if you want to go dive deeper into this literature. This is more just to tell you. In the emergency department, you're going to start seeing more patients coming in in custody via the ambulance that have been sedated with ketamine because everybody loves them some ketamine. In future segments, we're going to talk about if we should be sedating people in the pre-hospital setting. Is there other alternatives? And we'll be talking about this agitated or excited delirium. Is it real? Isn't it? And then we have to talk about deaths in custody and try and tease out the medicine of that. Like what is going on there? And is there a way that we can, you know, take these agitated patients like the patient I talked about naked running down the street and rapidly sedate them in a way that is safer than we might be doing now? We'll talk about that in the future. Tired of going commando into lawsuits? Stop messing around! Well, it's time to put on some medical legal briefs with Mike Weinstein. Stick around. Welcome back to Medical Legal Briefs with Mike Weinstock, where we use legal outcomes to make our ED patients safer. We have a case here. We're going to find some red flags. We're going to find some ways that this patient's care could have been improved, as well how the emergency clinicians could have avoided what was the subsequent lawsuit? Joining me today is Gita Pensa. Gita, welcome to the program and tell us about this case. So this is a case where in June, it's June, and a 50-year-old woman who has a history of type 1 diabetes presents to an after-hours clinic with a high temperature, pain in her back and her chest, and she tells the clinician on duty that she'd been working outside all day and thought that she had heat stroke. She was a little hypertensive, and the clinician there had some concern for ACS, for acute coronary syndrome. And so the patient, who in this uh, story, unfortunately, eventually becomes the plaintiff, she's transferred then to the emergency department where she meets the doctor who will eventually become one of the defendants in this case. So in the emergency department, the plaintiff complained of a history of intermittent back and chest pain over the previous two-week period, actually, not just today. So either it's a two-week thing of heat stroke or maybe there's something else going on. And she's also complaining of fevers and she's found to have, again, an elevated blood pressure, maybe a little tachycardia and some hyperglycemia. So Kate, I'm going to jump in right now because this sounds like, in some ways, a fairly typical patient for us in the ED, right? This patient has some chest discomfort. There's some discomfort in the back, which could be some either radiation from an ACS or, you know, obviously other possibilities, PE dissection. But 
There's a few other things that make me a little bit concerned. So why don't we just pause now and discuss a little bit of this presentation. And I want to focus on, on one of the things that makes me most concerned about a possible error is that the patient tells us that she has a different diagnosis, which was heat stroke. And I've had patients tell us, and look, I get it. Patients want to be well. Of course, you and I both want those patients to be well too. So I remember a patient with chest pain once, and I said, were you sweating? Yeah, but the room was warm. Were you short of breath? Yeah, but I'm out of shape. And you know, every single thing was an excuse. I'm like, listen, buddy, I don't want you to be sick either. I get it. But <laughs> you tell me the symptoms, I'll make the diagnosis, right? You know, keep us both in our roles, right? Absolutely. So what do you think about the fact that the patient actually gave this diagnosis? To me, it feels like that increases our risk of a misdiagnosis if we listen too closely to what the patient thinks is going on with them. Oh, absolutely. And this happens all the time. I think probably the most classic is uh, the allergic reaction or the spider bite. And I think we know well enough that- The MRSA spider. <laughs> right, the MRSA spider, right? We know, it's around. We know it's well around. enough to think like that's, probably not your diagnosis. So we're going to figure out what it is. When the presentation gets a little more complex and there's a, you know, potentially a lot of red herrings along the way, then I think maybe it does get a little murkier. We're supposed to listen to our patients and the patients know their bodies and all that stuff. But I think that we are also trained to have a high index of suspicion of some other things. And so maybe absolutely listen to what the patient is telling you, but put it in a context of all the data. And it's a balance, isn't it? Because sometimes we can get some information. A patient comes in with, for example, chest pain. And we say, what do you think is going on? It's like, well, it started right after I had a fight with my significant other or something like that. Or I just got it in the, hit in the chest with a baseball. You know, sometimes <laughs> asking the patient in a more open-ended way can give us that important information. One of the other things that makes me a little bit concerned, and then we're going to hear the rest of the story in just a second here, is the fact that there were some parts of the chief complaint that didn't really seem to be adequately addressed. Now, the back pain could be going along with chest pain. Of course, we get that could be happening, or it could be something completely different. So differentiating those two could be important. But the patient also presented with complaint of fever. And I will say, in my experience, fever can mean a lot of different things. And sometimes I ask a patient, what do you mean by fever? And they say, I had a headache. And I'm like, Hmm. In my medical training, those two words are totally different, you know? And I might say, did you have a temperature over 100.4 degrees? Oh, no, nothing like that, doctor, right? So really figuring out what they mean by fever, if it was subject to fever, which still can be important, and we know with children, a parent who relates that they had a fever typically was a fever. But for our general adult patient, when they say fever Maybe they took some antipyretic before they got there, and so they don't currently have a fever. Maybe they mean something totally different. Maybe it's one of those, and we always make the joke about this, 98.7, but I normally run at 96, so that's a fever for me, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think that from the charting, you can really tell the degree to which they were thinking about the fever. And the patient then winds up getting admitted chiefly to have this possibility of ACS investigated. And we're sort of left wondering like, well, what did they think about the back pain? What did they think about the fever? Well, as we're going to find out in just a second, some of those more concerning things for back pain, like a aortic dissection or even radiation from ACS, or even a back strain or some sort of osteolytic lesion or zostra. I mean, all those things weren't really explored at all, but this was one of the chief complaints. So one of the main take-home points from the segment here is to make sure 
even though it can be more time consuming and we all get it in a busy deed that's difficult to make sure that all those elements of the chief complaint are addressed. So what happens next? The patient gets admitted, but that's not the end of the story, Gita. Uh, no, it's not the no, end of the right. story. Uh, otherwise, we probably <laughs> wouldn't be talking about this case, of course. So as I said, she's admitted to the hospital, and I'm sure the, the emergency physician is feeling, well, okay, great. You know, I wasn't really sure what's going on. I feel safe now. The patient's safely admitted. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And uh, she does have an ACS workup, is eventually ruled out for ACS and discharge without really any definitive diagnosis made. And as far as I can tell, again, not really having much of the back pain or that fever addressed. And what's not clear is whether or not she's discharged still febrile and still with those complaints, but those things were never really hashed out in the chart. So we have an intern, we have an attending, both evaluated. There's some diagnostic uncertainty, which is cool. Patient is discharged. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I agree with you, the etiology of the fever, if the patient even had a fever, was not further explored. As these cases always go, there are twists and turns and some unexpected things happen. So the next day, she goes back to a different ED and she's diagnosed with a... A sinus infection. A sinus infection. I don't like really the, know where the, that the one came from. infection of the sinuses, yes. <laughs> where did that come I from? I don't know where that came <laughs> from. Maybe they were trying to, and you know, not a lot of sinus infections, you know, unless you're pretty significant or giving you fever. And I don't know about the back pain, but you know, and she may have come in just with like, like with the heat stroke and said, I think I have a sinus infection. Like, who knows? But anyway, she was eventually discharged from that ED as well. Okay. So let's recap for a second. She went to an after-hours clinic with a fever, back pain, chest pain, sent to an emergency department, had some workup done there, some labs, which probably weren't reviewed close enough, as you're going to find out in a second, admitted, intern sees, attending sees, discharged with this, you know, vague back pain, chest pain diagnosis after being ruled out for ACS, now has gone to an urgent care, diagnosed with sinusitis, and the next day, she went to her PCP, now she's got a little slurred speech and generalized weakness. She doesn't look good. So she is sent back to the ED. And there she is ultimately diagnosed with a, drumroll. Spinal epidural abscess. Spinal epidural abscess. And she does eventually undergo emergency surgery, but she is unfortunately left with residual weakness and she's unable to walk independently and uses a wheelchair for mobility and has to self-catheterize, and all in all, not a good outcome. And it was after all of this, with the case now being reviewed and investigated, it was after all of this that it comes to light that in the first visit, blood cultures had been sent, and they had all returned positive for staph. Wow. One of those follow-up on test results, I mean, this is a objective thing, hard to argue with the fact that we had a defined positive blood culture that wasn't further followed up on. This case then, because this is medical legal briefs, progressed to a legal action. I'm going to just relate the plaintiff's allegation, and then we'll say how the physician defended themselves. We'll do a quick literature review and then reveal the outcome of this case and some teaching points. So... 
The plaintiff contended that the defendant physician was negligent in failing to properly and timely diagnose and treat the epidural abscess, which then resulted in her permanent physical and neurological changes. They contended that the plaintiff's symptoms combined with the elevated blood sugar indicated an infection, this is at the initial visit, it was negligent of the defendants to fail to diagnose the infection and take action to treat it prior to releasing the plaintiff from the defendant hospital. So this was not only just the ED physician, but also the inpatient team that was also sued. Gita, how did the defendants respond to that? The defendants maintained that there was no deviation from acceptable standards of care. And the defendants also contended that the plaintiff's condition, spinal epidural abscess, was extremely rare. And That, of course, is true, and we also know how difficult it is in some cases to diagnose spinal epidural abscess on the first or even the second visit, and they contended that it was not negligent for the plaintiff to have then been released prior to the determination of the blood work that eventually revealed the presence of the bacterial infection. So I'm just going to jump in here briefly with a literature review, and there's, of course, tons of literature on spinal epidural abscess. But this was an interesting study, and I will say there's some, you know, questions with this study, and it was a little bit of a smaller study, but this was Beast et al. in American Journal of Medicine 2017, and they looked at 250 patients, 119 had a new diagnosis of a spinal epidural abscess, and they thought in their review of this that just over 50% had a diagnostic error, and what they did is they looked at documentation of either fever or focal neurologic deficits. And they found that over half the time that those two things weren't documentation in patients who had presented with back pain. So it's a interesting consideration. And we have so many patients in the ED who come in with back pain. And usually it's, you know, we could probably most appropriately call it idiopathic low back pain, could be a back strain. We could say it in that sort of way. It's sort of more easy to sort of think about in that way. But I try in my patients to always ask above and below questions. In other words, I'll ask, do you have any fever, abdominal pain, or weight loss? And that'll further explore for things, hopefully, like a spinal epidural abscess, maybe some sort of radiation of pain from the abdomen, AAA, maybe even pancreatitis. Weight loss could further explore for malignancy. And then I ask below the diaphragm questions. And that's a set of just a few questions also any urinary retention or incontinence, because we know retention happens first, any gluteal or lower extremity paresthesias, and any dysuria, urinary frequency, or blood in the urine, which would then hopefully account for any neurologic evidence of epidural compression syndrome, like a spinal epidural abscess, or other things like pyelonephritis, ureterolithiasis, renal cell carcinoma. So I'm not saying that would catch everybody, but putting something into our general questions for patients who present with back pain that's most likely a strain, we can sometimes find additional information. And Bees et al. in their study of 119 patients with spinal epidural abscess, so quite a few of patients, they found that over 50% of those patients did not have those questions asked, or at least documentation of answers to those questions. Right. And documentation of the answers to those questions is actually critical when it does come to actual litigation over these things. I think, you know, most of us have probably heard the expression regarding aortic dissection that the standard of care is to miss it. Right. With with spinal epidural abscess, you know, sometimes there's not a lot of difference there. It's, you know, when someone comes in early in the presentation and there are no red flags to push you into imaging them or doing the MRI, which is really the gold standard here, 
you're very likely to miss it. And sometimes there's really just, there's nothing that you can do about it. But then sometimes there are clues that might push you in a direction. And of course, one of those clues is the fever. If you, if you don't really address that in your chart in terms of your differential and why or why not, you don't think that the fever plays in to this patient's diagnosis, I think you're doing yourself a significant disservice and the patient. And then I think we really need to talk for a second about those blood cultures. Mm-hmm. A very frequent source of, of litigation are test results that are not acted upon or that are not reviewed in a, in a recent, if someone's been discharged and they're a bounce back, then really you need to go back and comb all those labs from the last visit. That clearly wasn't done here. And I, you know, is it possible that if one of those blood cultures had come back with, you know, a positive gram stain or staph early, and then you would have known, oh, you know, maybe I should go looking for something else. Like it really might've pushed this case into a different direction. It's interesting that we feel, at least I do personally, (laughs) that I admit a patient, so I'm off the hook, or I have a patient survive and stay alive until follow up with some physician as an outpatient, their cardiologist, their primary care provider, right? But it's really more than that because that failure to diagnose as well as the delay in diagnosis, especially for something like spinal epidural abscess where time is of the essence. And we saw with our patient here that this patient unfortunately had irreversible paralysis Mm -hmm. due to the delay in diagnosis. That just because we admit a patient in the hospital doesn't necessarily take us off the hook. So, you know, it's hard to say that these physicians really did something wrong in that sense. And maybe this was mostly the inpatient team that dropped the ball. And obviously, we don't have access to the culture results in the ED. However, I will say that lack of evaluation of some of these other parts of the chief complaint certainly could have contributed. So, Gita, do you want to hear what happens in this case? I would like to hear what happens in this case. (laughs) Or not hear, right? I I might not. So, so most cases will end up settling. And in in the words of Greg Henry, true malpractice is settled, not tried. Mm -hmm. But if it does go to trial, typically the defendant should be in fairly good shape to the tune of maybe 85 or 90% of the time will go for the defendant physician. However, that's not 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. And in this case, which did proceed to trial, at the conclusion, the court entered a judgment in favor of the plaintiff in the amount of just over $3 million. Now, this did go for a appeal, and there was an undisclosed change in that after the appeal. Mm-hmm. But in the end, this was a pretty big, you know, a pretty big judgment for the plaintiffs. So what are some take-home points? I, I might, if it's okay, just sort of start us off and, and look, you know, I, a broken record alert to the listener, but number one, you know, address all items in the problem list. That seems pretty basic, but a pretty frequent source of not only patient safety problems, but also medical legal problems. Beware, don't let a patient lead you astray. If they say they have heat stroke, but they've had fevers for two weeks, maybe it's not heat stroke. She might've thought she had heat stroke. Maybe she veered the thinking away from other possibilities, but it's really up to us to get that thorough history and physical and data and to act on that data and then come up with our leading diagnosis. Number three, specifically with back pain, you know, it's not quite good enough to be usually right. With the patient with back pain, for example, even though it's uncommon that we're going to find some very bad stuff, we're not being paid to be usually right. So 
with back pain, thinking about unexplained fever and what they actually mean by fever, neurologic symptoms such as urinary retention or incontinence or paresthesias or weakness, and thinking about some of those potentially can't-miss ED life-threatening causes of back pain, in this case, might have avoided this misdiagnosis, delayed diagnosis, and lawsuit. Finally, I think we should note that though the patient was admitted, the lack of follow-up of the abnormal test results, either in the ED or after discharge, was a, a real negative in this case and overall is a major source of patient errors. I think hospital systems are wising up to that and we are trying to develop these Swiss cheese systems where, you know, if the lab doesn't call, somebody else checks, like there's lots of layers of responsibility here. But when push comes to shove and litigation is started, it is going to be the doctors whom have the finger pointed at them. Great episode of Medical Legal Briefs, and I will look forward to more of these in the future. Thanks again for your help. Thank you. ASEP Now and MRAP's World Travels. The Netherlands. All right, thanks for having me back to talk to you guys at MRAP about health policy and specifically health policy around the world. This is our World Travelers edition. And we were supposed to go on a short little flight from New Zealand to Australia, but our guest for Australia is still trying to get into the country to get started doing some work there. COVID, you know, it slows everything down in that part of the world. Crikey! So what we're going to do is we're going to bypass Australia for now, fly over to Europe, go to the Netherlands. Goedemorgen, Nederlands. And then we're going to talk to one of our other guests, Dr. Terry Mulligan, who's worked there, worked in lots of places around the world, and will be able to tell us a little bit what it's like to work in that country. So thanks again. My name's Cedric Dark. I'm the medical editor-in-chief of ASAP Now. And what I'm going to start telling you a little bit about is sort of what I've learned from reading about the Commonwealth Fund's international health profiles about the Netherlands healthcare system. So they have a universal system uh, based on social health insurance, and it kind of merges a public and private insurance scheme. So initially, and this is what I found out, is that in 1941, they started their initial insurance scheme along the German model, which many of us would call the Bismarck model at this point, created by Chancellor Otto von Bismarck in the late 1800s of these competing sickness funds and essentially found a way to get everybody in Germany healthcare coverage. It's what several countries around the world use as their model. But the main thing about it is instead of doing something like a national health service or a social insurance, like a Medicare for all type of thing, they focus it on private insurance. So the 2006 Health Insurance Act for the Netherlands merged the traditional public and private insurance markets into one universal social health insurance program that's underpinned by private insurance and mandatory coverage. It's what we like to call a compulsory system, and essentially it only leaves out less than 0.2% of people uninsured. So all residents are required to purchase statutory health insurance from private insurers, and all insurers are required to accept all applicants. If that sounds familiar to you, well, yeah, it, it should, because that's what the Affordable Care Act did several years ago, is that it made it so that insurers were no longer allowed to reject people that wanted to buy insurance. And for a brief period of time, there was a mandate that everyone that didn't get insurance in another method, either from their employer or through Medicare or Medicaid, had to buy their own insurance. So in the Netherlands, funding is primarily public. It comes through premiums, tax revenues, government grants, that sort of thing. And the government, the national government, is responsible for setting health care priorities monitoring access, quality, costs. 
There's a standard benefit package, which includes things like hospital care, physician care, home nursing, mental health care, and prescription drugs. But there are some things that are left out, and people tend to purchase supplementary or voluntary insurance to cover some of those things. Those items might include uh, dental care, alternative medicine, physiotherapy, eyeglasses, contraceptives, or even cutting co-payments down for medicines that are not on the formulary. But the interesting thing here to me, number one, all the insurances operate as nonprofits, which you know is, is very different from the United States where we have several insurance companies that are for-profit, traded publicly on the stock market, and you can buy into those companies and become owners of those companies yourselves. Adults tend to choose their insurance on an individual basis. They say there's no such thing as family coverage. Everybody just has to buy their own. But the interesting thing to me is kids are covered automatically by the the national government. And the uninsured somehow get fined. I guess if they have to access services, they might have their premiums taken directly out of their income. And people that object to getting insurance, they have the ability to opt out, but they have to make mandatory payments into a health savings account in order to do that. So those are some things that are interesting in the basics of the Dutch system. But reading about it, one thing that I found fairly interesting was that General practitioners seem to run the show. They're needed to refer patients either to specialists or to hospitals. And there's something called the GP post, which covers after hours care. And I was curious, and I'll bring in Dr. Mulligan to talk about this a little bit. I'm wondering if this is what they do instead of emergency departments. So first, Dr. Terrence Mulligan, he's an adjunct professor of emergency medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And he's also right now the vice president for International Federation for Emergency Medicine and a board member for the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. We've worked together several times in the past, and it's good to see you again, Terry. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much. Good to see you and talk to you again. I think you gave a pretty uh, good overview of the uh, Dutch healthcare system, and it does sound familiar. It's basically a government-managed, government-subsidized, but private insurance system for everybody. And like you mentioned, it's 99.7% coverage for the whole country. And uh, it's a familiar model, not just because it resembles the Affordable Care Act, but actually it itself is a legacy of what was called the Becker model. Becker is a professor, senator in the Netherlands who originally worked with Bill and Hillary Clinton back in the early 90s when the uh, Clinton health care reform attempt was somewhat similar to this. Let's talk about a couple things. I guess it's helpful that, that you've lived there so long so that you can have sort of a patient perspective as well as a physician perspective on it. One of the big perceived issues that we have in the U.S. is long wait times for like elective procedures. And of course, with COVID, that's probably gotten even worse. But how do you think wait times compared over there? in the Netherlands to what you see here in the United States? If you mean wait times, uh, like waiting for non-emergency procedures, non-urgent procedures, elective uh, surgeries, in some cases it is longer, and in other cases it's not. But in general, in those cases when it is longer, it's not long. In this country, we tend to see people that lose their insurance, you know, or in between insurances, and I've seen a couple patients like that this week. How often does that happen? Do people wind up in between insurance at all? Or is it just a seamless transition if they want to go from one insurer to another insurer without having any detriment to their health care plan? Everybody there has private insurance and you are mandated by the government, like you mentioned, to have private insurance. If you cannot afford it, then you are enrolled in government subsidy programs that work with you to, to determine you know, when and why and how it is that you can't afford it. 
One of the big barriers to buying private insurance in our country is the unbelievably enormous cost that it has. I think it's somewhere between 15 and 20,000 for a, per person for family if you just buy it on the open market in the USA. Over there, my whole family was covered and it cost me about a thousand dollars a year for a thousand euros a year out of my pocket. Now, my employer paid for another thousand or so, and the government picked up two or three thousand of that. It is a private insurance market, but it's mostly provided by government subsidy. There are a couple other things that were mandated as part of this private insurance competition market that, like you mentioned, uh, they're all non-for-profit. That doesn't mean that people aren't making a, a living or an unbelievable living. Not-for-profit doesn't mean that people don't do it for the wrong reasons. But, uh, but they have mandates on the way that those insurance companies behave uh, in that there's no cherry picking. Uh, there's little to no co-pays. There's little to no out-of-pocket. There are very few exemptions. And it encourages a lot of intra-company streamlining and efficiency building kind of proprietary gamesmanship in order to make themselves more competitive in that market. Well, you had mentioned earlier, like borrowing back things from the Netherlands or, or from the U.S. What's the greatest lesson you think you learned from the Dutch that could inform how we might structure our healthcare system in the U.S. moving forward? The things about their experience, I think, that showed how successful they were and things that we should borrow are that they're very open to looking outside of the field of medicine. So if you look outside the field of medicine, they borrow pieces from IT and from the internet, from that back then, online teaching and learning was still kind of a new thing. They had a lot of shared and collaborations. So um, one of the lessons I think is to look outside the field of medicine. Also look outside your borders, your country borders, your ethnic borders, uh, your language borders, your socioeconomic borders. There are a lot of countries where everyone speaks English, but they might not open their arms to somebody coming in and teaching in English. So they're very open to outsiders and outside the concepts. And the last question for you, and then we'll have to wrap it up. What's one thing that you love about the Netherlands? What do you miss about it? I really loved my experience there. I was there almost five years. Like I said, I was a newlywed, and then we had our two children there. Something like uh, half of the babies in the Netherlands are born at home. Whereas we, we decided to have our kids in the hospital. And uh, I don't think we paid anything except for my insurance premiums. We didn't have to pay for anything. I did break my wrist when I was there. I was thrown off of a horse and I, I didn't have to pay anything for that. And so um, my experiences as a patient were very good. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me. It's been my privilege and the privilege of the MRAP listeners to be able to hear your story about the Netherlands, their healthcare system, and how it compares to the United States. All right, thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Great to talk to you. Summary, March content, EMA, abstract two. Abstract two. 14 French percutaneous uh, chest tubes versus 28 to 32 French. 
for the uh, traumatic pneumothorax multicenter randomized trial, basically found uh, they're the same, much less pain, suffering, if you use the smaller one, really a single center study, not multicenter. Some questions about you know patient selection, but in general, this is just more evidence to suggest that small catheters are as good as big catheters, but caveat from Mike is uh, make sure that everybody's on board with this before you start doing it because you've got to know how to manage these. And there's no point putting in a small catheter if the surgeons are going to just put a chest tube in when they go upstairs. Okay? Okay. I'm trying to keep this short, sweet, trying a new style. Is it upsetting? Well, it's just such a natural approach, okay? All right, all right. Abstract three. Okay. They tried to ask the question uh, whether low-dose short-duration antimicrobial therapy for the treatment of community-acquired pneumonia in kids was as good as higher-dose, longer-duration therapy. And we're talking seven days versus three days. We're talking about 35 milligrams per kilogram to 50 milligrams per kilogram versus 70 to 90 milligrams per kilogram per day of amoxicillin. And they found, basically, that they're the same. However, in the sicker kids, it might not quite be enough. So this is not a perfect study. It's a two-by-two factorial design. You'll have to listen to the boys go into it in detail. But it gives a little bit more evidence. If the kid's not too sick... And you're sending them home, the short course low-dose therapy looks like it's just about as good as high-dose long-duration therapy. But what's interesting is the amount of poopy pants was the same in both groups at around 44%. So, you know, get ready for the poopy pants. Abstract 4. Let's talk uh, pad placement. So this was uh, Abstract 4, which was anterolateral versus anteroposterior electrode position for cardioverting AFib. So stable patients, AFib. It's been said that the anteroposterior position is better than the anterolateral position. This was based on a couple of studies from 20 years ago. Mike notes that uh, current electricity is better than older electricity. We have biphasic and stuff. And this big study found actually that anterolateral, the biphasic defibrillator, was better at first pass and multi-pass conversion of atrial fibrillation and probably should be your go-to. But I would say this, as they note in the study, and as Mike notes, 50% of the time, they don't convert after the first shock. And I think it's appropriate because of different people's anatomy and shapes is that you try anterolateral first with your biphasic. And if it doesn't work, you try AP. This is my theory. It is based on nothing. But if at first you don't succeed, try the other side. That's just me. Abstract five. Abstract five that they did was the accuracy of rapid glyophilobarily acid protein ubiquitin carboxyl terminal hydroxyl... I don't know. Accuracy of a rapid glial fibrillary acidic protein ubiquitin carboxyl terminal hydrolase L1 test for the prediction of intracranial injuries on head CT after mild traumatic brain injury. Uh, we'll call it ubiquitin. This is a uh, serum test. But basically, when you get bonked on the head, your brain can leak into your blood. And if you do this test, it can suggest whether there's brain injury or not. The problem with this stuff and this study, which is supposedly a bedside test, is the blood samples were taken many hours after the injury. We still don't know if this is useful clinically in the emergency department. So somebody comes in, bonk on the head. Is it possible one day that we'll do a blood test to say, look, there's no brain injury here. We don't need to scan you. Some people are going to suggest that this is what this thing does, even as it is approved to do so. But it is really not for the emergency department. So don't be fooled. This was not a decision instrument or a lab test that decides scan or no scan. It just was not done in a time frame that is useful for us. It's very interesting. It is possible that in the future you could actually have a uh, blood test instead of a CT scan, which would significantly reduce radiation. But we are not there yet. Abstract 6. Abstract 6 was thrombectomy for anterior circulation stroke beyond six hours from time of last known well, the Aurora trial, a systematic review and individual patient data meta-analysis. I think at this point we understand that thrombectomy in lots of patients with stroke is better than medical therapy. 
This asked the question, what about past six hours? And guess what? It was way better than medical therapy past six hours. It was way better than medical therapy past 12 hours. So thrombectomy, still winning. Abstract 8. Abstract 8 was a really good one. Randomized clinical trial comparing helmet continuous positive airway pressure to face mask. And in this study, the helmet, which is basically looks like that old school diving giant helmet you put on your head, was way better in almost all parameters. A little too good to be true. It was unblinded, of course. But I remember first seeing this 20 years ago, and they've sort of not gotten caught on. This study really suggests that they're way better and the patients love them way more. So as Mike said, if you get an opportunity to use one of these, go play with them. One of the concerns though is that you basically are in this little uh, fishbowl and if the oxygen and stuff stops flowing, you've got to know how to take this thing off very quickly. But in this study, the fishbowl helmet CPAP was better than normal CPAP. It wasn't BiPAP, it was CPAP. But it worked really well for respiratory failure. Abstract 9. Abstract 9 might be the feel-good paper of the month, which was incidence of central line-associated bloodstream infection following central venous catheter placement in the emergency department. And they basically looked at all of the catheters that were put in throughout the hospital and asked the question for non, you know, smash and grab and you've got to get the line in right now lines, but the ones we've got time to put it in in a sterile fashion. Were we as filthy as people have told us that we are you know for years we've been told that the emergency department basically we wipe our bottoms with the catheters and then we put them in because our infection rate is so high and upstairs they remove them immediately well this study says that's not true the infection rate was as good as in fact even better than upstairs and so we're not filthy we're not wiping our bottoms when we put these things in it's a lie now there is a bias here these are all er docs and uh, maybe the blinding wasn't as good as we'd hoped It does suggest we can put these in cleanly. Abstract 14. Abstract 14 that they covered is an ever-burning question, which is, in pregnant women with severe VTE and low to moderate probability, does D-dimer rule out VTE at three months? And the answer in this study was yes. So they had about 312 women in that group that were low to moderate probability, but they thought there's a possibility there was a PE, and they got a D-dimer using a 500 cutoff. And they found that only one of those people in the next three months developed venous thromboembolism, so like 0.2%. So they said, as we have found in other similar studies, that you can use D-dimer in pregnancy with a cutoff that's at 500, and it works in low to moderate probability. Do you want to know the bad news? Yes! No, you don't. Here's the bad news. Two-thirds of the patients were positive. So even though it ruled out 30% of people... There was a bunch of people where it was not useful, and then you are back to square one, which is, what do I do with said pregnant woman in order to further work up the possibility that they have a PE? That is not commented on in this paper. You'll have to look elsewhere. Abstract 16. Abstract 16 is an important one because of what it does not say, even though it says it says a thing, it doesn't say that thing. It's sensitivity of modern slice CT for subarachnoid hemorrhage at incremental time points after headache onset, a 10-year analysis. It's from New Zealand. And what it portends to say is that you can do CT scanning for subarachnoid hemorrhage with a modern scanner. Six hours, yeah, we understand that. Eight hours, 12 hours, even 24 hours after the onset of the headache. And the sensitivity is still really high. But here is the problem, and it's a fundamental problem with this study, is that there were very few people in these time groups that went beyond about 12 hours. So I wouldn't do that. The confidence intervals are enormous. So it might be true that with modern CT scanning, you can rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage well past these sort of accepted six hours that most people talk about now. And it could be much longer than that, but we might need a much bigger study of people presenting, you know, 24 hours later to know. The thing is, most people don't present that late. They present early. So it might take a very long time or need a very large multi-center study 
to say that is true. So just be careful if somebody quotes this to you and says, oh, it's 99% sensitive at 24 hours for subarachnoid hemorrhage. <gasps> Ask them the confidence intervals on that 99%. It's huge. It's bigger than Ben-Hur. I'm just saying. This is the Ultra Ultra Summary. Herbert out. There were so many more great papers. Listening just to these Ultra Summaries is ridiculous. This is space repetition. You're supposed to listen to the whole show. Oh, you're making me sick. I'm done. Herbert out. Basically, we wipe our bottoms with the catheters and then we put them in because our infection rate is so high. Okay. That's not true. All right. All right. This is space repetition. You're supposed to listen to the whole show. Oh, you're making me sick. You're making me sick. You're making me sick. You're making me sick. Listening just to these ultra summaries is ridiculous. ridiculous. When I read it, you know, first I was like, whoa, okay. All right. This just really makes sense, you know? <laughs> All, right. All right. This is the ultra ultra summary. Ultra summary. Okay. I'm done. All right. All right. Hurry up. Well, it's just such a natural approach. Right, it's that time where we drop by the home office in Burnt Corn, Alabama. Burnt Corn, Alabama, corner store. We don't have them. We had a post office that opened at 11, but it moved out of town in 1997. We also had a zip code that everybody knew, but that got shut down in 2002. And Jen, actually, we've got a couple of letters to get into. The first is a short one about SVT and adenosine. Letter one. One of our listeners wrote in several years ago, I stopped using six milligrams of adenosine for SVT and go directly to 12 milligrams to start. I get looks from the nurses and some of my peers when I do this, but what I found is that six milligrams rarely works. Why not just go to 12? No one uses 50 joules for cardioversion anymore. So why are we using six milligrams of adenosine? Well, uh, Jen, this, this is not what I typically do. So uh, we need an expert. Yeah, let's see what cardiology guru Susie Demeester has to say. Interesting question, Swami. And while there are some situations where more is always better, blood donation, kindness, chocolate, Pop-Tarts, that is not the case with adenosine. I know the term guidelines have been a recent trigger word for us, but current AHA guidelines advise using six milligrams of adenosine followed by 12 if necessary. And this initial dose of six milligrams has actually been shown to be effective in 60 to 80% of patients with doses of 12 milligrams being effective in nearly 90%. It's critical that this dose of adenosine is administered as a rapid push followed by a saline flush. And so that could be a reason for the medication not being effective initially. It's also worth noting that we can try vagal maneuvers, and there's some newer ones out there before we decide to move to adenosine. And I know we discussed this offline, but many of us have switched to this more kind, gentle approach of starting with a calcium channel blocker. Now let's talk adverse effects of adenosine. We all, or we should be, warning our patients about that expected nausea, flushing, that feeling of impending doom, but adenosine can also cause more serious adverse effects, including AV block, cardiac ischemia, hypotension, and even prolonged asystole. I think the best approach in cases of stable SVT is to start with a vagal maneuver, and then if that's unsuccessful, move on to either six milligrams of adenosine or consider using a calcium channel blocker. And then, Jen, to round out our mailbag for the month, 
we've got a little audio bit from Dave Glazer and Jess Mason. Yeah, back in October 2021, Jess chatted with Larissa May about neutropenic fever, and one of the things they mentioned was not doing a rectal temperature in these patients. Well, Dave Glazer, of course, had some thoughts about that. Mason Glazer. Fortunately, we have a very astute group of subscribers, and sometimes we get things wrong, or at least we say things that might possibly be wrong. So, David, tell me what I said here that concerned you and and talk to me about your thoughts on that. Yeah, this was one that just sent an ouch right through me. Uh, the <laughs> segment was on fever neutropenia management, which we see, of course, not infrequently. And then came that ancient words of wisdom, which was don't do a rectal temp in these patients with the implication that you could cause uh, what's called tiflitis, so basically a colonic serious infection in these neutropenic patients. And it just made me cringe because there's effectively no evidence to support this. And in fact, I can't even find the origins of this medical myth. It's true if you go to the current IDSA guidelines for the use of antibiotics in neutropenic patients, which date back all the way to 2010 at this point, they do tell you rectal temperature measurements and rectal examinations are avoided during neutropenia to prevent colonizing gut organisms from entering the surrounding mucosa and soft tissues. So they don't really mention tiflitis, which I don't think I've ever actually seen. They also don't give any reference. They do go on later in the document itself to repeat themselves by stating rectal thermometers, enemas, suppositories, and rectal examinations are contraindicated for patients with neutropenia. Well, if you repeat yourself enough times, then you do have a reference. There so, you go. And that's actually, it that's it seems to be what happened here. I actually had a medical librarian try to hunt this down a few years ago, and she got stuck in an endless loop of the IDSA guidelines simply repeating themselves, but offering nothing to back up this wacky claim. I even went to my local head of oncology, and she couldn't come up with any support for it either when I ran by at her, but she frankly was floored that anyone would question this because it is just such, it carries such biblical weight, it seems. Everybody <laughs> knows it, everybody practices it, and nobody knows where it came from. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I have certainly was taught this way, and I didn't really even think twice when you say something like this, and then it goes out to the world, people hear it, and they're like, ah, 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 wait a second, where is the evidence of this? But let me ask you this, what's the harm in not checking a rectal temperature, right? Aren't we being maybe erring on the side of caution? Isn't that okay? Or do you see any problem? Well, the harm is that we risk missing fever in the neutropenic patient, a population obviously very vulnerable to infection and sepsis. And there's a fair bit of literature attesting to how poorly oral thermometry performs. So I found a recent meta-analysis that taking an oral temp had a sensitivity of really just over 0.5 for detecting fever. And my personal delta record is five degrees Fahrenheit. That's about two and a half Celsius comparing rectal to oral temperatures in a particular patient. So you can imagine the difference in approach if a neutropenic patient has a temp of, say, 99 versus 104, or in Celsius, that'd be 37.2 versus 40. 
And truthfully, the literature on newer tympanic and temporal thermometers really isn't much better. It's funny that you bring this up because I actually have a segment that will soon be published with Jason Woods where we talk about this exactly, where we dive a little deeper into just how bad some of these other measurements of temperature can be and how truly a rectal temperature is the most accessible way to get a core temperature on our patients in the emergency department. So we don't really want that option off the table entirely just because of myth. I, I can't say I'd advocate that every neutropenic patient who comes in has to have a rectal temp, but I think you just have to be mindful, as we've said, that an oral temp or a, however you're doing it in your department temp shy of the rectum is likely to miss a fever. So for those patients who, I don't know, maybe they reported they felt a little feverish at home, if their triage temp is a little bit higher, or frankly, even if they just feel a little warm when you're doing your exam, I'd argue that a rectal temp for those people is really going to be key in their management. Yeah. And one other just sort of practical comment that I have is that if you do check a temperature orally, for example, and it's a fever, then I think there's no added benefit in getting an exact rectal temperature. They have a fever. So there's no reason to not check an oral temperature. You can still check an oral temperature. And if it doesn't demonstrate a fever, but the patient feels warm to you, honestly, I'm probably going to check another oral temperature. But if you really think that this patient has a fever and it's not being demonstrated on an oral or peripheral temperature, then go ahead and check the rectal temperature. If that's key to the management, Go ahead and do it and know that there is no literature to refute this practice. Okay, and one more practical point here. Let's think about this, right? You take a thermometer with a clean probe cover that's lubricated and it's gently inserted into the patient's rectum. That's probably not going to do any harm. I mean, this is an orifice that actual poop comes out of on a daily basis. If anything's going to cause translocation of gut flora, it's going to be poop not a clean, lubricated thermometer. With that said, you have the floor. Final thoughts. Well, truthfully, I think this pitch can, uh, can apply to the entirety of our patient population. Frankly, when a patient comes in, I had somebody last night who came in actually as a stroke alert, and they were weak, and there was a question, is he a little weaker on the right or a little weaker on the left? And then his temperature turned out to be 103. So fever is frankly one of those key findings that sends us down a diagnostic and management pathway completely different than in afebrile patients. So you really have to trust your tactile sense. I don't even generally wear gloves when I examine patients. I like to be able to feel the skin. We've really pitched here the rectal temps. They're not perfect, but they certainly are the best we have in the ED. And frankly, a small discomfort and inconvenience if they pick up a fever you might otherwise have missed, particularly in a neutropenic patient, but really across our patient population. Well, that's really helpful. Thanks for diving into the literature on this. Thank you for calling me out if I say something. And this goes for, for any of us on MRAP. If you hear something and you say, hey, that's not quite right or that's not consistent with my read on the literature, then we'd love to hear about it. That's exactly what this mailbag segment is for so we can have that dialogue. So thank you so much, David. All right. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Next two. Thanks, Jess and Dave, for that update on the rectal temperatures in patients with neutropenic fever. And the mailbag was hopping this month. We had so much good stuff come in. So we've got to do one more piece. This one's from Mike Weinstock. 
Thanks to Sean for your question. I would love if you could have one of your experts comment on this in an upcoming episode. I've noticed a trend that many emergency medicine physicians are including a disclaimer in their notes about COVID-19. For example, this care was provided during an unprecedented national emergency due to the novel coronavirus COVID-19. The disclaimers usually state something to the effect that care may be adversely impacted due to limited knowledge of the novel disease and or because of the strain on healthcare resources. Do you believe disclaimers such as these provide any medical legal protection? Do you think these comments could inadvertently increase risk or be problematic in some other way? So, Sean, I'm so glad that you asked this question. And this is one of the very frequent questions that I get asked. And I have also consulted with some of the other folks who do a lot of medical legal work. And I've done almost 70 cases as an expert with medical legal work. And I've never seen this come up either way. So I can't tell you this based on experience. What you're really saying is that you're providing suboptimal care to a patient. I mean, that's in the end what you're saying. You're making an excuse for it, and I get it because, look, resources are strained in my hospital and every hospital around the country. If there is an adverse event because either a patient was discharged sooner or because labs which were supposed to be done were not done, I just don't really think that that's going to be an adequate excuse for that. So... Here's another example. If you have a patient that you want to transfer from a smaller hospital to a tertiary care center with, say, a ruptured AAA or an aortic dissection or something imminently life-threatening, and there's a delay in the transport, well, of course, it's important to document when you contacted that center and who you spoke with, and if you contacted them again, and what you're doing to stabilize the patient in the meantime. On the other hand, if there is some ongoing event like COVID-19, which is going on in the whole country, it to me feels a little bit like making an excuse. Now, I will say, if you have a busload of, you know, children who crash outside of your ED and, you know, you have to move some patients out of rooms, that all is going to be documented elsewhere. All that information is accessible later because it's not just our chart, but it's the whole healthcare system. And I oftentimes tell the story and actually have included this in lectures and writings, the triage log, the flow of the department, when each patient came in, what their chief complaint was, which clinician that they saw, all that stuff is discoverable. So for example, if you have three codes come in at the exact same time, you don't really need to say that care was compromised because of that, because all of that is discoverable and part of the hospital record is part of the ED record. So to summarize all this, my feeling, and again, there can be other folks that disagree, and I totally get it that there could be some other situations where you would want to say something like that. But to me, it feels like an excuse. And it feels like you are saying that this patient's care was compromised. I knew it was going to be compromised, but I couldn't take adequate care of this patient. The response could be something like, well, then just keep them in the emergency department or admit them to the hospital or call their primary care clinician or transfer them, or call other people to come into the hospital to work on this patient. And, you know, we all get that in times of COVID, things are tough. But isn't that the nature of our business, that we are seeing many, many patients that are coming in at the same time? And it's a tough bar that we're asked to jump over. But in the end, unless it is something really beyond the pale, again, you know, that busload of children or whoever, you know, an airplane crashed right outside of the emergency department double doors, right? Well, all of that stuff can be brought out later if there's a problem. And to me, it feels like if we're making an excuse 
and we know that there's poor care, why didn't we actually do something better at the time? I hope that answers your question in a little bit of a long-winded way, but I want to sort of bring in some specific scenarios in there that hopefully will be helpful to really define where we should go with this. I don't do that in my notes. I know some people do. Again, not saying that it's wrong, but as far as my thoughts, I would recommend against it. Thanks for the question, and thanks for being a MRAP listener. A bit of a longer mailbag than usual, but so much good stuff we had to cover. And everybody out there in MRAP land, don't forget to keep those letters coming. We also had a zip code that everybody knew, but that got shut down in 2002. So, you're going to send stuff to us in Burnt Corn, Alabama. You're going to have to send it to Evergreen, because that's where the post office is, now that we don't have a zip code no more. All right. Monster like that. <laughs> all right, Jan, it's time for the mega summary. We are on the other side of the program. We've covered all of the great stuff for the month. And now we're going to do a little recap. We're going to give people a little teaser or a reminder of what they've got in store. Mega in store. Rural medicine talks. So let's start off with rural medicine. This was Vanessa Cardi and Adrian Salim talking about a procedural sedation that went bad. Of course, this was happening in a single coverage, rural ED. They had a 50-ish-year-old patient, came in with a history of alcoholism and a very vague history, including a fall. And on their exam, they could really see that there was a lot of extensive sub-Q emphysema that was noted, which is always a little bit eye-raising. But of course, in this remote setting after hours, there's only one doctor and they had very limited diagnostic capacity. They could get a non-con CT, just head and C-spine, couldn't get a thorax or anything else and they could get plain films. And so on the plain film, they note that this patient has a large hemopneumothorax and some rib fractures, and the hemoglobin's a little lower than this patient normally has. So they move forward with some procedural sedation to put in a chest tube. Ketamine is chosen. And during the sedation, the patient gets really agitated, and they give a little more ketamine, and the agitation continues, and so they end up adding propofol. And what happens next? The patient codes. Patient ends up having return of spontaneous circulation, but does not have return of neurologic function. And so part of this piece talks about the dangers of procedural sedation with a single coverage type setting, but also how you deal as a physician with bad outcomes. This particular physician, you know, developed some symptoms of PTSD, had a lot of self-doubt, and talked about the things that were helpful, which included support from colleagues and debriefing, of course. In terms of these types of sedations, they took a step back and kind of looked at the case and just made some notes of what are the takeaways here, which is to remember that procedural sedation, although most of the time it goes so smoothly, it really is a high-risk process. And in this particular case, this was a patient who started off hypoxic. It wasn't like a healthy person that you're going to just do a fracture reduction on. This was a sick person who had some comorbidities who started off hypoxic. And so it's kind of a red flag of it going to be riskier than the average sedation. And so maybe in these circumstances, when you're single coverage, you know, just giving it a little extra thought. Is there some other resource I could pull in to help me? Maybe I just want to choose to use a lower dose of sedation or use something like a regional nerve block or local anesthesia to minimize the use of these heavy-duty medications. And so there's kind of two take-homes in this piece. How do I deal with bad outcomes? What are the things I can do to help myself when something goes wrong? And then also, could I have predicted a bad outcome and done something to mitigate what happened? These are tough scenarios, Jen, because we are often relied upon to do these procedural stations for these procedures. And sometimes we are, I wouldn't say lax, but we stretch the patients or the patient groups that can get procedural station in the ED without definitive airway management. 
And sometimes the patient isn't appropriate for that. Even in high resource settings, we still do this sometimes. This has nothing to do with being a rural shop or not, except in the rural shop, you don't have as much of a choice. It's not like you can admit the patient and let the trauma team take them to the OR for this chest tube. And so it does make this really tricky situation. I have had a couple of situations in the past where I've actually decided I can't get the patient admitted and get the procedure done. I don't think they're totally safe for procedural sedation. So we're going to control the airway and do the procedure and then we'll extubate them. But that's not an easy decision to make. It's not something that we frequently train doing. So I think these are really hard circumstances and you're right. You can't be too hard on yourself. And at the same time, we got to take home some stuff to not do it again. Absolutely. Our next segment was on the sedative only intubation. And this is a, a really tricky scenario. This was prompted by a listener question about intubating patients who are hypoxemic and hypotensive. And instead of using the typical approach of RSI with a sedative and paralytic, why not just give them a sedative? They'll maintain their hemodynamics and they'll preserve their respirations. And Scott kind of gets into the fact that we have confused some of these terms. When we talk about sedative only, the other name for that is the facilitated intubation. And this is a no paralytic, but a full sedative induction. And in those patients, you're giving them something that typically will make them apneic. So they are not going to be spontaneously breathing. And with the doses of sedative you have to give to get yourself to a comfortable intubation place, you're probably going to take away some of their hemodynamic parameters as well. The problem is that we've confused sedative only and ketamine awake, and they're very different. The ketamine awake results in a dissociated but spontaneously breathing patient, very different than the sedative only. And so Scott kind of gets into this and says, you know, most of the time, if you think that you want to have your patient awake to maintain their hemodynamics, the ketamine only is the way to go, unless, of course, you're really comfortable with a full awake intubation, full topicalization. But a sedative-only approach won't give you those benefits. It won't give you the spontaneously breathing, hemodynamics-preserved kind of scenario. And so ultimately, he doesn't see this as a good option. If you think you want to go with a sedative-only approach, just ask yourself the question, what am I doing to benefit the patient or myself over a traditional RSI? And maybe, maybe just go with the traditional RSI or the ketamine awake. And I think that it's really a matter of we've confused some of these terminology, some of these words. We think that a ketamine awake and a sedative only are the same thing. And Scott really goes through how they're not. And the sedative only can be very dangerous, except in very skilled hands. Yeah, I think this is, you know, a very nuanced discussion of very advanced airway management techniques and risk benefit calculations. And for those who are not super experienced at airway, this may be a time where you think, you know, I, I don't want to wade into these waters. I think keep it simple within your own skill set. And so I listen to this and I think, yeah, there are a lot of things that can go wrong with airway for sure. And you got to really know what you're doing. So be careful. This sedative only part, it kind of scares me, to be honest. I think that he's right. It really needs to be done in the hands of really master level airway operators who do this all the time and have a lot of experience with these agents because, you know, we can really get ourselves into trouble. Eye emergencies. Jesse Warner spent time with Deirdre St. Pierre, who is our uh, local ophthalmology expert, and they talked this time about acute angle closure glaucoma. Now, this isn't something we see all that often, but it's also not that rare for me. I mean, it's, you know, I think we see this every once in a while. It really is one of these true ocular emergencies. And I think of it as sort of like a compartment syndrome of the eye. There's other ones that I also kind of use that analogy for in the sense that the fluid is building up inside the eyeball very acutely, and this can cause ischemia to the retina and vision loss ultimately. 
So as that pressure goes up, remember the, the mechanism for this is that the iris is blocking the drainage. So the canal of Schlem, I loved it. I just had to say it. I wanted to get the Schlem in there. Ivy. <laughs> and what does the patient come in with? Well, they often have some eye pain. They often complain of blurred vision. They're seeing halos around things like lights. They have frontal headaches sometimes. Sometimes they have some nausea, vomiting. And oral examiners love to use this as a case because they try to present it to you as someone who's got a headache and nausea, vomiting, and you know you forget to examine the eye. But of course, in real life, when you look at the eye, it doesn't look normal. It usually has some injection. You may have a mid-range sort of semi-fixed pupil. It can look cloudy as well. They went through the diagnosis in not just the clinical exam, but what are the physical exam findings. There are some slit lamp findings, which they talk about, but of course, the cornerstone is elevated intraocular pressure. Typically, the pressure will be over 25 in acute angle closure glaucoma. In many cases, it's actually over 30, but the clinical diagnosis is really clinched by the presentation, the exam findings, and that intraocular pressure. Now, here's where I learned something, which is what do I do when I make this diagnosis? So what she recommends is to immediately start the topical medications. Of course, the Timolol, the carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, which is dorzolamide, which is atopical as well, the latanoprost, which is a prostaglandin analog, and also if you have an alpha agonist like bromonidine or alpha-GAN, that's the next drop to try. So you give all of those drops, you wait five minutes, give them all again, wait five minutes, do it again three times for three cycles of that, and then recheck the pressure after 30 minutes and see what you got. That's kind of considered maximum medical therapy to an ophthalmologist. If all of that doesn't work, that is when you go for the IV medications like your acetazolamide, your mannitol, and then by this time, obviously, opto is getting on board. And so that sequence, I think, as told by an ophthalmologist, was a little different than I had traditionally learned it. So I learned a little something there. And certainly transfer of these patients is appropriate. Time is optic nerve. We want to get these people their definitive treatment by an ophthalmologist. So, you know, get them to that person as soon as possible. I think this can be a scary diagnosis, Jan, because like you said, we don't see it all the time, but we know it's lurking there. The painful red eye should always make us think about acute angle closure glaucoma. And we're not that comfortable getting that IOP with these devices. And the devices aren't that great. These tono pens are not designed really well. There are some good ones on the market that kind of take a little bit of the user out of it. They're so simple to use, but very few emergency departments I've ever worked in use these devices because they're slightly more expensive but they probably are worth it. So something to look into is getting a tonal pen device that's easy to use and getting a good in-service for everyone so they know how to use it. I can't tell you, Jan, how many times I've called the ophthalmologist and said, I think I have acute angle closure glaucoma, but my tonal pen's not working. Can you please come in yeah. and get an intraocular pressure for me? And that's just a waste. And also lots of places don't have an ophthalmologist on call. So we need to be able to do this. We need to be able to do it easily. And I think that the way to do that is to get the right device and get a little bit of training. Stuffers, Packers, Pushers. Drugs. Jen, we've got Sean Nort and Stuart back talking about part two of our triumvirate on getting drugs into your body in packages. We did body stuffers before, and now they're moving on to body packers. Yeah, body packers is the more classic one where you have the mule, the drug mule, right? The person who has the drugs wrapped in the condoms or the balloons or whatever it is, some kind of secure mechanism. They swallow these hundreds of packets with the idea that they transport them somewhere and then they come out the other end and everything is fine, right? But we often have these patients brought to us often in custody and we're asked to deal with them. So what are the things that we need to remember? Number one is that in this particular case, as opposed to the body stuffers where they're just swallowing, you know, little Ziploc bags of drugs because they're trying to get away from the police, luckily most of the time these are actually secure packets. But 
On the other hand, there are much larger quantities of drugs in their system, so we have to think about that. The radiology department is really where we're going to make this diagnosis, and that's kind of the cornerstone of knowing what's going on. X-ray is actually usually able to see most of what's going on, but CT, of course, will illustrate it more clearly. And certainly if there are signs of bowel obstruction, you do want to get a CT. What do we want to do clinically? Well, you know, because this could leak at any time and be a life-threatening situation, you want to have them on a continuous cardiac monitor. You want to have IV access ready to go. And there are three drugs that you want to have at, basically at the ready in case they get sick. Number one is ample amounts of sodium bicarb. In case they have cocaine, for example, on board and they get QRS widening, you want to have a lot of that ready to go. Number two would be naloxone in the case if it's opioids. And number three would be benzos in case, again, it's a sympathomimetic and we need to control agitation or seizures, that kind of thing. GID contamination is really the mainstay of treatment because we want to get the packets out as quickly as possible, but also as safely as possible. If a patient actually has an obstruction or gets very symptomatic, we're going to, of course, call surgery. And it turns out that endoscopy and colonoscopy or going after these things is really not recommended because it could cause rupture of those very delicate packets. There are a couple other little medical legal things just to mention, which is that remember that although often the law enforcement will want you to be aggressive with these patients, if a patient refuses treatment or requests to be discharged and has capacity, you should comply with that request. And these are not patients who have lost their rights. And so we have to keep that in mind when we're dealing with patients, because often they may tell you they don't want you to do anything, and you should comply with that. And they can be put in a room without a toilet is often the case because they don't want them to flush anything. And law enforcement can wait for those things to come out the other end. These situations can be really tricky, Jim, because if they leak, it's a disaster. But they usually don't. They usually don't leak, which is great for the patient. But you do have to keep a close eye on them. And if there's any decompensation, you really need to get your surgeons on the phone right away. What we kind of used to do is even when they weren't ruptured, we would call the surgeons right away just so they knew about the patient and said, hey, listen, this guy's got a ton of cocaine in his system in little baggies and, and, and they're packed well and he's totally asymptomatic and we're going to watch him and observe him. But you guys should know about him because, you know, there's a good chance or at least some chance that you're going to get called because something bad happens. And we had so many of them where I trained that it was all kind of routine. Everybody kind of knew what to do and everyone knew how to manage them. And we just watched them and usually everything passed on its own and no problems. But in those cases where it ruptures, you really do have to be ready to actively manage these patients to keep them out of harm's way. Chris Hicks. Our next segment was one that you said you really enjoyed, which was the pulse pressure in trauma. This was prompted by an article that Kenji Anaba was the senior author Looking at this idea, this parameter of pulse pressure, the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure. And Jan, I'll be honest, I don't think that I have thought about this since medical school. I definitely don't think about it on every trauma patient that comes in, but I think Kenji and his group would say, you probably should look at this. And what they were really looking at was pre-hospital narrowed pulse pressure, a pulse pressure that is less than 30 millimeters of mercury. And the idea is that it might be an early sign of significant hemorrhage or impending circulatory collapse. So we talked about this article with Chris Hicks, and he said, you know, here's how I think about pulse pressure. It's not like if the pulse pressure is narrow, you should go ahead and do a thoracotomy and send them to the OR. It is more of if you see that narrow pulse pressure, think about it like transient hypotension or an increased shock index. All of these things together push you towards, hey, this guy's a little sicker than maybe I thought he was. And that narrow pulse pressure, while it's not an indication to do a procedure, it is an indication to be more ready to do those procedures, to understand that's a higher risk of severity injury, and we want to be more aggressive if things change. So now I've really kind of incorporated this into my trauma management. And if I see a narrow pulse pressure, I'll point it out. 
And the interesting thing, of course, Shan, is that the last time I had one of these scenarios and I said, hey, the pulse pressure is narrow. We should watch this guy a little closer. The trauma surgeon turned to me and said, what do you think we've been doing the whole time? That's that's (laughs) why we're concerned. So a lot of our trauma colleagues already know this. It's part of their gestalt when they evaluate the patient. It's good for us to know about it too, though. Yeah, you said it best. I think of this when I learned about, you know, a low blood pressure in the field, even though their pressure is normal now, you know, can predict badness. This is just like this. This is just one of those clues to keep in mind. And just to put a plug for EMA, they did review this paper, this actual paper that prompted this segment in December 2021. In that episode, it was abstract number six, if you want to jump to it. And they did a really nice job going through the methodology of the paper, et cetera. But clinically, I think there's something useful here. Jan, our next segment was my favorite from the month, the bleeding hemophilia patient with Britt Guest and Mel Herbert. Yeah, this was a pretty scary story that Britt tells us. This is a 40-year-old patient who presented to their emergency department who came in asking for a factor infusion. Now, this is a patient who has hemophilia B, so it's factor 9, not the more common factor 8 that we typically see. And this is a patient who actually is, you know, obviously had this all their life and usually puts their own IV in at home and gives themselves factor replacement, but is coming into the hospital this time because they're just not feeling well enough to do that. And it turned out that this patient had had an IR-guided hepatic and pancreatic biopsy for a mass that had been detected a couple days before. So you've got this patient who's had this invasive procedure. They have hemophilia B. They're not feeling very well. That's not a good combination. So, of course, the hemoglobin's a little lower today. They need the full 100% replacement of factor at this point because this patient is doing poorly. Their hemoglobin's dropping. Now the blood pressure is dropping. Their pain is getting worse. Abdominal pain is getting worse. And so we're really worried that they're bleeding. So how do you calculate 100% replacement of factor in someone who's got factor 9 deficiency? Well, it's actually a pretty simple formula. You take their weight in kilos and you multiply that by the percent factor replacement that you want. In this case, it was 100%. So in this case, they calculated that the patient needed 8,600 units of factor 9. But then, of course, is that going to solve the problem of this patient who's actively bleeding? No. So what else could I do besides give factor? So they get into what hematology recommended, and in this case, they recommended aminocaproic acid, or amicar, as a bolus and a drip, and they preferred this to TXA, which was the initial suggestion, which I think we would all kind of think of, but they preferred to go with the aminocaproic acid. They also wanted the patient started on a continuous factor IX drip, which none of us had actually heard of. And of course, this patient gets a CT scan, and yes, they're bleeding, and ultimately the patient didn't do very well. But they really went through what is the kitchen sink. The kitchen sink is 100% replacement, which we need to know how to calculate. Think about things like aminocaproic acid, maybe DDAVP, maybe something like factor 7, but certainly getting hematology and something like IR on the phone earlier, surgery, of course, they're all going to be helpful too. Yeah, we discussed this in October 2019 in the setting of a trauma patient who also needed that full repletion. And I think the key is if the patient comes in with acute bleeding, they need a full factor replacement. 100% of their factor needs to be replaced. We've got some good tables there. And Jane, you mentioned up front, these aren't cases that we see often. We don't remember these things. And so we need an easy, readily accessible guide to remember what to do. And so use MRAP as that readily accessible guide. We've got all the information there. If you see that patient, go to MRAP, pull this up so you know exactly what to give. Yep. Corpendium's got it too. Dr. Jenny Farah. Our next segment was about ketamine and EMS. And Jan, really, this, this episode, this issue of EMRAP was really pretty heavy on ketamine. And this was Jenny Farah talking to Mel about where and how ketamine is being used in the pre-hospital setting. The two biggest places are for pain control, 
in that 0.1 to 0.3 mg per kg dose, and also for sedation of the agitated patient. This is usually either in the 1 to 2 mg per kg IV or the 4 to 5 mg per kg IM. And these are very unsafe circumstances to have a very violent, agitated patient in a pre-hospital setting where you don't have 20 security guards and a bunch of staff to help you out. You have to get that patient down fast to protect them as well as protecting everybody who is working to help that patient. We just have to remember that when we give those big doses of ketamine for sedation in the agitated patient, you're basically doing a procedural sedation. So once you give that, you've got to monitor them as if they had a procedural sedation. And that's how we can ensure that the patient doesn't have a bad outcome. But ketamine is still the best drug to get that patient down rapidly when they are aggressive, they're agitated, and they're a threat. Yeah, I'm not surprised that ketamine is becoming popular in the pre-hospital setting. You know, the first time I kind of heard about it, you know, emerging onto the ambulances, I'm like, all right, well, this is going to be the solution to a lot of problems that they have. This is a pretty safe drug to use. It doesn't need to be refrigerated. We use it all the time. And so it doesn't surprise me that it's getting out in front of the literature to support it. So, you know, if I were in the field, I'd be wanting all the tools that I could possibly have. And so this is one of them. Our medical legal briefs this month brought together two of our big voices in the medical legal sphere, Gita Pensa and Mike Weinstock, talking about a case of a spinal epidural abscess. And the initial case presentation has a lot of the red flags that often end up in litigation. We have a middle-aged woman with type 1 diabetes who presents with back and chest pain. She's also got a fever, and she tells the emergency physician that sees her, oh, I think I'm having heat stroke because I was working out in the garden all day. And Mike takes that opportunity right away to say, you know, this is anchoring bias. The patient has given us a diagnosis. It's so easy for us to latch onto that diagnosis and run with it. And we just have to make sure to check that bias and say, well, it's a possibility, but let me do my evaluation of my workup and try and figure out exactly what's going on. He also mentions the fact that in this particular case, not all of the chief complaints were assessed. The initial provider really focused on the chest pain and didn't really address the back pain or the fever. But when you put all three of those things together, it really can lead you in very different directions. This patient ends up being admitted for a chest pain workup that's negative and she's discharged. Later on, she presents to her primary care physician and is diagnosed with sinusitis. And then very soon after that, she presents to the emergency department now with slurred speech and generalized weakness and eventually is diagnosed with a spinal epidural abscess, but unfortunately has a poor outcome with some residual weakness. And they get into spinal epidural abscess a little bit, looking at an article showing that a lot of the classic findings aren't always there, but sometimes they are. And the key is that we have to make sure we ask for all these things. Is there a fever that we can't explain some other way? Are there focal neurologic deficits? Is there some other sign of active infection or a recent active infection and in this article, what they showed was that many of the times where there's an error, it really comes back to a failure to gather and integrate all of the information, which again goes back to one of Mike's first points of addressing all the different chief complaints. And we all know that spinal epidural abscess is a very difficult diagnosis to make. It's very challenging. And so the things that we can do to make sure that we catch more of these is to address all the problems on the list. Don't let the patient lead you astray. Remember that anytime the patient has atraumatic back pain, to think about, do they have an unexplained fever? Are there neurologic signs or symptoms? And maybe that pushes us a little bit more towards getting the imaging we need to diagnose that spinal epidural abscess. And Jan, we've got a follow-up piece in June looking really deep into the spinal epidural abscess diagnosis and the management that we need to pursue. Our job is so hard. I mean, 
you know, finding spinal epidural abscess already, even in someone who comes in with a chief complaint of back pain, is not easy. It is not easy to get to that diagnosis. We know that. But then you're going to layer on top of that somebody who's saying they have chest pain, they think they have heat stroke. I mean, I just think that our job is hard and it is hard to get this right all the time. And I really, I just, you know, I just want to say that. I just want to say that this is, it's just highlight to me. I was like, this just tells me that our job is incredibly hard and, you know, we're going to make mistakes sometimes and we can do our best to avoid them. And all the points are really good, but boy. And Jan, I think that that is really important for us to note and say that, you know, Mike and Gita's real push here is not to say that we should have caught this case, but rather right. to give us tools to catch more cases in the future. Well, I appreciate that. The Netherlands. Our final segment this month was a continuation of Cedric Dark's wonderful series on healthcare systems and another look at a different country, this time the Netherlands, and what their healthcare system is like. And so Cedric Dark talks with Dr. Terry Mulligan, who is a, an American emergency medicine physician. Many of you probably have met him. He's very active in development of emergency medicine around the globe. And he lived in the Netherlands for about five years and worked in their EM system. So what do they have in the Netherlands that's so wonderful? What can we learn from them? Well, they have a government-managed, government-subsidized system, but it operates under private insurance companies. And so it is a little bit like the Affordable Care Act when it was originally designed. Of course, there's been a lot of holes poked in the ACA, but it really does sound a little bit like that. There's government subsidies to help people who can't afford care, but the healthcare is actually delivered under a private insurance umbrella. And in the case of the Netherlands, it really covers basically the entire country. 99.7% of the country is covered. It is a compulsory system. All residents must buy insurance. So there are mandates out there. If you decide not to do that, then you are mandated to have a health savings account that you have to contribute to. The insurers are not able to reject anyone. It is funded mostly by federal dollars, whether it be premiums, tax revenues, grants, all of that kind of goes into it. And then, yes, you can buy supplemental insurance to cover things that aren't covered. But what's interesting about their model is that the insurance companies there operate as nonprofits, very different to the model we have here. It sounds like a good system. The Netherlands is not a huge country. So while one of the criticisms of these kind of like everybody's covered systems is that, you know, for an elective procedure, I want to get my knee replaced. I'm going to have to wait forever. Dr. Mulligan points out that that's not necessarily true in their country. Now, it's again, it's the, the level of need in terms of the millions and millions of people is much lower than larger, larger nations, but they don't have super long wait times. Anyway, interesting story. I love hearing about all these different healthcare systems. I think Cedric Dark's series is just awesome. It is really interesting to hear about this because we don't really get a lot of information about what goes on in other countries. And I like this idea of the competition spurring innovation. That's really what we want to see, right? We want to see innovation in how healthcare is delivered. And this system really tries to embody that, to push for that innovation, to make healthcare more efficient, to deliver better healthcare to more people. Maybe something that we don't quite have here. There's a lot of stagnation here and not that competition and that innovation. And Jan, that's our month for April. Some really great segments kind of covering this depth and breadth of emergency medicine. A lot of ketamine, although I don't think Terry mentioned ketamine once when he <laughs> talked about the Dutch. They're peaceful people. They rarely have to be sedated pre-hospital with large doses of ketamine. Yeah, and I don't think the hemophiliac got ketamine. I don't remember that being mentioned. Although that's maybe, a good point. Maybe that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> and Jan, as always, it's great to chat, go through a case, talk about all of the segments that we had with you. I really enjoyed it. And thanks again, Swami. It is always such a pleasure. And everybody, we will see you in May. Absolutely. And until then, remember to keep doing what you do. 
because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. That's a rookie mistake to think nitroglycerin rules in cardiac pain. Co-infection is super common, and many of these ticks carry multiple diseases. That's what prevents the person from succumbing to this catecholamine storm and becoming more and more unstable. You know, in the vast majority of these cases here in the U.S., there's an element of suicidality associated with it. So really, it's a sobering thing. It's tough for the team. Well, I don't know about you, but here in Bend, we do myocardial biopsies on all of these patients. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 